Hello. Please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, the Little Shop of Heat gives us two for the price of one, which is uh, nothing. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I, with a heavy heart, am Adam Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani. My heart isn't quite as heavy, but I don't know. Give me some time. That might happen. Mine's a degenerative sort of defect. <laughs> Like, yeah, well, no, no, no. Right. <laughs> it's like a cow heart. Uh, well, welcome everybody to uh, the Double Edge Double Bill, um, which this is a monumentous occasion for a couple reasons. One, um, the plan is I'm going to be releasing this on the actual fifth anniversary of the show, which is May 10th, despite what, you know, iTunes and your podcatchers might say, because there was a weird thing when we started the show where the first four episodes are listed as May 31st, 2018. It's like, nope. It was May 10th. Yeah, no. That's when I put out the first episode officially. Um, and uh, also, as you know, I announced last week, uh, at the end of the last week's episode, um, this is going to be the final episode of Double Edge Double Bill. And that might come as a bit of a surprise, especially, you know, we had some Patreon polls and stuff. And I've indicated we wanted to go further. Um, this was a bit more sudden, but at the same time was something that kind of had been building for a while. And we just didn't quite honestly acknowledge it until fairly recently. That just felt like, you know, a fifth anniversary feels like a nice way to, to end things out, just because um, doing the show has been great. I've loved doing the show, but there have been certain points, especially over the course, I would say, the last six months or so, where it's clearly become, like, untenable for the both of us. I think you'd agree with that, Adam. Yeah, I just, uh, because of personal stuff going on in my life and health issues and family issues and things, it started to feel more like a side job other than a hobby and i it's not that i wasn't having fun with it anymore but i wasn't having fun leading up to doing it let's put it that way i always had fun while recording but leading up to doing it was always like fuck i gotta try to fit this in and once that started happening it's like well then why why yeah and even just from from my perspective it's it's exactly the same thing like i love recording the show with you adam and i love editing the show but as you know a lot of those scheduling conflicts came into being um it made obviously the sort of the, the weight to record it and the delays kind of like it slightly tarnished like the recording aspect of it and then truncated the editing aspect which i also like doing and this just kind of became you know a bit more like oh most of my time with this hobby i enjoy doing has is spent with like my least favorite part of it which is kind of like after watching the movies wayne dak should be able to record and it's no like issue with you obviously with that just because you had a lot of stuff going on in your your life yeah, and yeah, let's, it, no let's make it all about you yeah <laughs> I'm trying to avoid blame for you, but fine, <laughs> I guess. Um, but but no, I think it just it, it became t like clear from that, and also just it became exhausting doing a weekly show um, for after a bit, especially like our format and everything. You can tell, especially with some of the bad picks over the last couple months, where it's just like, yeah, we don't have a lot to say about these because it feels just like covering a bad movie every week in particular, sort of becoming a lot more draining and a lot less like exciting, really. 
than even covering I agree. you know a good one and a bad one. I would say, um, but at the same time, I, I do want to emphasize that um, while Double Edge Double Bill is ending with this particular episode, um, this will not be the end of like a main podcast on the feed. Um, because my plan is, uh, given Adam's not going to be pursuing the show anymore, um, I'm going to take a bit of a break for like a month or two, kind of gather what I want to do, and then uh, you know, get a new co-host, and then put out the new show, uh, whatever that may be. Um, and so, you know, I'll also be releasing, you know, some bonus stuff on, from the Patreon on this main feed, like not every week, but it'd be like, you know, every couple of weeks or so just to keep you all interested or enticed or whatever. And keep in mind with this new show as well. Um, despite me getting a new co-host and everything, I am welcome to invite Adam on if he's able to be on for as a guest spot or something on for the show at any time. I'm going to come on it. Just fucking tank. It's gonna be. It's gonna be uh, our it chapter two discussion elsewhere, all over again, baby. Okay. <laughs> I can eject you. Like I don't. I have no fear of ejecting someone for doing that necessarily. Oh no, but I, uh, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll definitely, whenever available, whenever I, I would be a fit, I would definitely like to be on whatever you do. And also on the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/dedbpod, I'm planning on also releasing some like bonus material there. If you join up for the dollar, I'll be putting out like sort of on the edge of relevance style things, uh, which is a shout out. You know, um, the same week that this is coming out, uh, you would also be able to hear both uh, an on the edge of relevance Adam and I did for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, and then also a Tango and Cash commentary. So they'll also have if you want some more Adam to tide you over, um, those will be on there as well, along with that huge back catalog of like the last. That's another thing. Like it's been three years since we started the Patreon, and there's so much bonus content you get on there for like the dollar. Yeah, and there's two years of shit before that. Good right. lord. On this main feed, of course. But, you know, Adam, we gotta do one last ride um, here, and uh, we'll be doing that in the form of, uh, we don't have a, necessarily a topic, we're gonna do the special edition thing, that was gonna be Tango and Cash and Heat, where we're gonna do movies we did previously, but we decided, given, you know, last episode, fuck it, let's just do two movies we really love, which does include Heat, uh, which, yeah. uh, right, is your choice, because um, we want to redo that, as we'll talk about when we get into that discussion. And then uh, my good pick of Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 film. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into uh, Heat. He's here. search for the scent of your prey and then you hunt them down that's the only thing you're committed to that keeps me sharp on the edge where i gotta be you want to be making moves on the street allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner my life's a disaster zone because i spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer in a Michael Mann film. Heat. So Heat came out uh, December 15th, 1995 from director-writer Michael Mann. And as I mentioned previously, we have covered this movie on the show previously. Uh, we did it as part of our fifth episode on heist films alongside Mordecai 
the uh, Johnny Depp vehicle. That yeah, I remember was. that. Yeah, big big time <laughs> yeah. movie. Right. Yes. Um, and we wanted to do it again because um, if you listen to that episode, it's not one of our favorites. Um, it is definitely like one where we were still getting you know the hang of doing the discussion. Also, the audio quality is terrible. Like I think what well, you were like next to a fish tank or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I was living at the time. When I had to record, it was either I had to record outside, which you can also hear that in earlier episodes, birds and all that shit, uh, or I had to record in this little, basically closet-sized room that had a fish tank in it. And uh, it had no windows, no air circulation, and, I mean, we started, like you said, in May. So, I mean, I'm just in a sweat box, basically, and I was using shitty internet connection, shitty headphones, shitty microphone, everything. It was just... Not to say it's much gotten much better. It's gotten a lot better compared to that. But uh, yeah, it was just it was clusterfuck. Yeah, but uh, so we decided to cover Heat again because, um, as I think you mentioned, then you mentioned several times you love Michael Mann in general. But you would say Heat is like your favorite, and maybe not just Michael Mann film, but of all time movie, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. Heat is absolutely the the greatest movie I've ever seen. Still is. And yeah, Michael Mann's my favorite director. So yeah, two for and Al Pacino's my favorite uh, American actor. So three for. Yep, he's he's got a great act. You could say. Uh, you could. I wouldn't. <laughs> yes, yes, but uh, so yeah, obviously Heat, a uh, very celebrated film uh, in the genre of crime drama, uh, where you know we follow two different uh, protagonists. We got uh, Captain. Uh, Lieutenant Vince Hanna, who's played by Al Pacino, who's part of the LAPD tracking down uh, this career criminal, uh, Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro. And then uh, also everyone else on Earth is in the cast and everything. Um, Pretty much. Yeah, it's it's a massive, sprawling cast. I hadn't watched Heat until we did that episode uh, five years ago. Actually, I have not rewatched it since. Uh, so I was Ooh. like, oh, I might as well revisit it. Especially I got that 4K Director's Definitive Edition Blu-ray, which is fascinating, especially considering uh, with Michael Mann, he's kind of famous or infamous uh, for really futzing with his movies and various different releases. He is the one, from what I understand, he's done that the least with in terms of like, there's no restructuring like with Black Hat of like the entire like mm-hmm. flow of the story or anything like that. Really, from what I understand, there's a couple times where he trims dialogue or certain shots, and the big thing with this release is the color grading is a lot different. It's a lot darker. You do get, like, a lot of the lighter scenes are much more blue-tinted, and even, like, the black scenes look a lot more, like, dark, like, all the stuff at night looks very dark. Like, I'll just say, for an example of one thing he changed um, during the infamous uh, She's Got a Great Ass scene, there's that one bit in the original released version where um, you hear an ADR line of Al Pacino saying, like, uh, ferocious, aren't I? That's not there. That's just an example of how little the edits are in this definitive edition. Yeah, it's definitely more visual. Uh, it's almost like he's taken his modern visual style, like Collateral, Miami Vice, and all that, and then applied it to Heat. Mm-hmm. That's all, He's kind of made it look like what he's into now. That's that's pretty much it. And like you said, yeah, there's some trim dialogue and stuff, but it's basically the same film. Yeah, which is very interesting also given with like the, the color grading element of it, it almost makes the film look at certain points like, oh, was this shot like yesterday? And it's a 1995 period piece instead of, because like just the color grading is like surprising where you'd think like, oh, is it going to make it look, you know, like all digital video? And it doesn't. It still looks like great on film. 
uh, you know, like the, the cinematography still, still feels like as immersive as it was in their previous version. It's just like, oh, it's a bit different shading on it, and that works tremendously. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the big thing why heat has always stuck with me, and why you know it became so important to me. Heat is the first instance of a movie I can think of that someone in my family, or just anybody, but it was my aunt. The first time I ever heard someone refer to a movie as beautiful. Like that looked absolutely beautiful. And I was like, what? I never even thought of that before. And uh, so when I saw it, I instantly understood exactly what she meant. And it's probably one of the very first, if not the first instance where I really started to notice cinematography and shot composition and things like that. So, I mean, he is very, very important to me as far as even becoming more involved of a film fan, film fan, film plan. I love plan and films. I don't really like Flan. I don't like it. Feels like I'm eating snot. Now you see why the show's ending. We just that that was the big str- like straw that broke the camel's back was our Flan differences yeah, here. Yeah, our yeah, Flan exactly. friction, as it were. Yeah, Flan friction. It was interesting going back to this as well because I like it's always like the the third thing we were talking about earlier, where it's like, oh, we gotta like watch the, both the movies and we gotta do the show. And Heat is like a near three hour long movie. Um, it flies by so well like you just totally, are totally, fully not. immersed in it and you never feel like oh this is super long to any degree I, I to the point where it's like i still i don't agree with clocks and things when i watch this movie like nope that wasn't three hours no no no, that flew by i i get so engaged and engrossed with this movie that every time i watch it it's just it's gone and i've seen this movie i don't know how many fucking times at this point uh, but yeah, I never f- have ever felt the run length. And, you know, that's the thing with this movie where certain people I've recommended it to are like, you got to watch it. The run length has always been a sort of, oh, I don't know if I can commit to that long or I don't know if I, oh, it's th- almost three hours, shit. And then anybody who's actually committed to it and watch it all agree, like, man, that didn't feel like three hours. That movie was incredible. And that's a lot considering, like we mentioned, everyone's in this movie. There are so many different, like, pieces that are like going on at the same time to the degree that like this was an infamous example where uh michael mann had written the script a while ago like in the 70s or so before he even like directed anything was just writing scripts basically and he you know was like oh i need to do something with this no one's like buying the script how about i turn into a tv pilot which he did with la takedown back in 89 and it's a fascinating case study when if you ever watch LA Takedown like I have in the intervening time since I last watched this and you just see like oh wow this is heat like the scenes are like very similar it's, it's a shorter version but like the stuff that's there is extremely similar to the original movie that we've seen but um it's just the way it's shot and the way that like the actress performing it um it's fucking dull it's so boring yeah it's not good and what do you think is the key thing that makes uh, you know this version of it work so much better than the LA Takedown version? The actors, the technology, the camera work, everything. It's definitely one of those movies where everything in this came together perfectly uh, to where I don't think this movie, and I know the sequel's coming out and all that bullshit, but I don't think this movie could exist without this cast, without this group. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I think especially considering just it's not just like these particular actors, but even just these actors at this particular time in their careers, like the big people where you got Pacino and De Niro, mid 90s, very different times for both of these guys where like uh, Pacino had just come off of winning his Oscar for Sense of a Woman, um, an Oscar that many, I think, rightly consider a career Oscar 
because yes. um, I, I finally watched Sin of a Woman recently, and that movie fucking sucks, and I don't get all of the love <laughs> that it got from the Academy. It just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It's so clear, like, a career thing. So he was definitely in that kind of mode where he's like, oh, I won, so this is, like, victory lap shit. Like, I don't need to, like, really you know, be the subtle, nuanced guy it was in the 70s, necessarily. And then at the same time, De Niro is also, like, this is post, like, Cape Fear, kind of like this 90s period where he's starting to transition out of, like, he's still a very well-respected actor, but he's kind of, like, very close to that sort of meet-the-parents era that's going to, like, completely turn him into a different direction. So it feels like these guys only could really do this particular movie where they're playing both two incredibly fascinating characters, but also just two dudes who have, like, clearly worked for a while and are very tired this movie Mm. despite how like propulsive energetic it is everyone is so fucking wiped out (laughs) by life in a way that feels like very authentic and very relatable despite the fact they're like oh it's cops and robbers or whatever it's like no it's just everyone feels tired and i get it (laughs) especially now more so than the last time i watched it's like oh i get it even more like i'm fucking so tired yeah these are all lifelong cops criminals you know whatever with all these personal struggles going on. They're just exhausted. They're at the end. I'm like, this is it. We just got to get through this. Fuck. Like, you get the idea that the Hannah character, like, I can just catch this fucking Macaulay guy. And I, I can take a fucking break. And Macaulay, that is my last score. Like, I just got to get through this, get over this, and I'm good to go. And, uh, yeah, it, and it works perfectly for that. Because, I mean, nobody can disagree, at least I think, that Pacino, while he's, he is wildly crazy and over the top in this movie it's a brilliant performance it's so good and yeah i love that pacino was like i'd like you know to imagine that vincent hannah was on you know cocaine the whole time yeah yeah that makes sense 100 percent. and just the de niro of it all and how just kind of calm cool and collected de niro is but then he's got these bursts of just intimidation and rage like when he busts in on ashley judge and stuff he's he's frightening it, it, this movie to me even with like the side characters with like val kilmer and even fucking john Voight, but uh, all these other characters in this movie tom sizemore danny treo it's like it's almost like the best these guys had ever been up to this point and also maybe some of them since this point yeah, I mean, especially, you know, what we should mention in this intervening time since we last covered this movie, we have lost, like, a Tom Sizemore, um, who shortly after this, he would do, like, Saving Private Ryan, but then mm-hmm. his, like, by the start of the new millennium, he was starting to go down, and it would kind of tragically continue forward until his death recently. It's really fascinating with, like, him in particular, where, like, he feels the most kind of, like, of the various guys, like, the one I would probably actually, like, meet in real life. Everybody's so grounded in reality. But Tom Sizemore in particular feels like, oh, he this was, like, one of my dad's buddies who yeah. went down, like, an upsetting path um, that I just wasn't aware of. Like, I love that scene where they're all at the dinner table um, at the restaurant, and Tom Sizemore's just talking to the little girl, just like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. Oh, she doesn't know, neither do I. <laughs> like, that feels like such a real moment that I've lived, honestly. Exactly. It feels like your uncle who's trying to relate to you or be the cool uncle and stuff like that. Like, 100%. Yeah, Tom Sizemore, you know, and I don't want to go off and think about Tom Sizemore, but Tom Sizemore was one of my favorite character actors. Uh, I mean, look at, like you said, him in this, him in Point Break, him in Natural Born Killers, which I'd argue he's one of the best parts of that movie, him in Strange Days. Like, that guy was fucking great, but man, he just couldn't get rid of them demons. 
because uh, I don't think he would have ever been like a headlining star. They tried that once with the relic, and it didn't really work. But uh, he was he was he was pretty fucking great, man. Yeah, when he was able, when he was functioning, yeah. he could be really great. Yeah, for sure. Like in this movie, but even like where, when you're going down the line, where you got like Voight, like you mentioned, I agree. Is like we're especially considering like this was actually during a big, like right after a big break he had in his career, where he mm-hmm. wasn't in movies between Runaway Train '85 and this movie. So ten years, he comes back to movies, and he also looks just like in this weird scene where it's just like, oh, you were off doing a lot of different things, Void, weren't you? Because, <laughs> like, the long yeah. hair... Potential melanoma. Like, he's so tan and leathery. Uh, you know, obviously, he was based on Eddie Bunk- on Bunker. Right, who was in this movie as well, amongst this amazing cast. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, he's amazing. McCulty um, Williams, for sure. This is him coming off, like, being Bubba in Forrest Gump. Yeah. To, like, night and day different performances and he's like pretty stellar, especially all the stuff with him and Ashley Judd, who's great, but like that whole oh, great. Like, dynamic is amazing. Yeah. And of course it also ties into like a Val Kilmer, which it's so weird that this is like the same year as Batman forever. <laughs> and there's such like different performances, they even looks like he looks physically completely different than he does. in Fucking Batman for he's so much more bloated. Like he looks like he's been on like so many different drugs and stuff like that. His character has, and it just looks, especially even within the movie, where, like, him at the beginning versus, like, by the end when he's cut his hair and he looks over at Ashley Judd and she gives him the hand signal and everything, he looks just, like, broken as a person. Oh, yeah, yeah. he looks like shit. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, Val Kilmer's great. I mean, Ted Levine is a rare, like, just normal guy. Well, too, I would argue this is kind of like the start of he, like, Ted Levine, like, this was obviously, he was originally offered the Wayne Grow part. And he was like, after Silence of the Lambs, I can't do that again. I don't want to get typecast as, like, psychopaths. But weirdly, after this, he would be, like, this kind of cop guy in a shit ton of movies. Even, like, the original Fast and Furious movie, where he's, like, essentially playing the same character. That's true. But, yeah, you got Wes Studi, who's always fun. Kevin Gage is great as Wayne Grove. He's terrifying. You got, uh, you know, Allstate. Which is awesome. His name is Dennis Haysbird. Give him, give, use his proper name. <laughs> Look, his name is Dennis Haysbird. He has good hands. You're in good hands when you're with Dennis Haysbird. Bud Court, come on. Stop being an asshole to him. Yeah, Bud Court is a real asshole. This is one of the movie where I don't think I would honestly change a single thing. I think sort of everything comes together. Yeah, especially considering just, like I said, how many different threads are happening. Like, for example, there's a, certain bits where, like, if I was a studio executive, I'd be like, oh, why don't you cut, like, the Dennis Haysbert subplot? Or why don't you cut, like, Natalie Portman, who's also a baby in this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, her subplot, in theory, you don't need necessarily, but in execution works so well where, like, that... Her, like, attempted suicide, like, has been building up all this time from, like, all this stuff for, like, her dad, who's absent. At the same time, Hannah, like, wants the best for her. And then, like, the, you know, the attempted suicide happens. And that brings uh, him and uh, his wife together briefly. But then they just kind of realize, no, this isn't going to work. Like, we were just not capable. Him and uh, Diane Venora. It's just like, no. Nah. great, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, he's married, he's married to the job, man. That's what he is. He's Detective Vincent Hannah. He's not a husband. And never will be. So I think there's even the line. He's on his, what, third divorce? Right, my, my third marriage. Um, yeah, and all that. And especially the way Pacino also 
plays like that element of it is I think where you get the most sort of like this obviously this movie is so famous for like got a great ass or stuff like the the bit where he's talking to like the one drug dealer guy and starts singing that Phoenix song <laughs> and just like, like very weird choices that are just like oh this is like the over the top silly Pacino but then you've got like the smaller moments like my favorite with him and his wife is the bit where he comes back after she said like I made it dinner for us like four hours ago it's like oh i'm sorry that i couldn't come back and be like oh the dinner's a bit overcooked like the way (laughs) he like Mm -hmm. just completely falls apart while delivering that like pause and then just like sinks as he like says cooked (laughs) it's so good i had these two crackheads put the baby in a microwave to get it to stop crying let's talk about that let's share and through that we could find a catharsis like he's so fucking good and it's just you know but then like you said you get the moments like him in, in the club with Tony Loki give me what you got like he's just going nuts but then when he finds Natalie Portman and the mom comes in and the way he's acting with her or everybody talks about it but the diner scene you know is one of my favorite just pure moments of dialogue between two characters in a movie and one of the best acted scenes period in a movie for me him and him and robert de niro sitting across each other face to face these two dudes older guys at the end of the road just finding a weird commonality in their obsession with their work and it's just it's fucking just a master class well especially when you consider this is the first time they were together in scenes in the film right and you know like godfather part two there are different timelines and stuff um and it's, it's such a great example where this is the one scene they share with each other but it's like shot so dynamically but at the same time it's not flashy at all it's like literally i believe mm-hmm. they had like a three camera setup for that where it's just like yeah. one behind robert de niro one behind al pacino one of like the two of them and yep. it's just like just the cutting works perfectly because you're just immersed in like this just feels like a natural conversation between two people where they establish the thesis that obviously has been running throughout all this just like the hey you know what man if i find you i'm gonna like in a corner i'm gonna get you before you make somebody a widow and it's like yeah but at the same time i'm also gonna get you if i have the upper hand in that situation if i feel boxed in i'll put you down Right. Though my favorite sort of implication of this is I'm just imagining behind maybe that one camera that has like the two person set up. There's a waitress who's like, I need to ask them if they need a refill or if they want to try our specials. But they seem really intent on continuing this. I'll just I'll just wait. I'll just wait. I'll finish finish your conversation. But could you imagine if they filmed that? (laughs) If <laughs> they're talking, like, hi, can I get you guys some sweet teas? Like, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Not <laughs> good. What good? Yeah. <laughs> I like mine unsweetened. It, it's so fucking great. And, you know, the thing is, like, yeah, there's that exact scene in the LA t- takedown. Uh, pretty much shot the same way, too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's the caliber of acting compared to these two guys. It's just, it's no other two guys could do this and deliver that scene the way they do. I I don't care. I don't know who you put with, if you took one of them out and put anybody else in it, it wouldn't work. It's these two guys, these icons of, you know, American acting, you know, play gangsters, you know, typical Italian guy, actor, like roles and stuff like that. And you put them in this and they're not just gangsters or Italian mafia or any of that stuff. It's just cop and robber. It's a very simple idea that's been told how many times? Cop versus robber. And it's never been told quite like this. True, but counterpoint, Adam, I think Tom Holland and Timothy Chalamet would do such a great job. That's what Hollywood wants. That's what the people want. What? 
Is that Are a thing? No, I'm, this is oh, a complete joke about what a dumb studio executive would do. He's like, get the Timmy and the Tommy. They'll be together. We're getting Adam Driver to play young Robert De Niro. And you're like, wait, what? I mean, to be fair, that one I think makes more sense. That that, that feels I like guess. to me. Another great scene that displays that for me is like the scene where Pacino comes across like the, the prostitute that Wayne Grow killed. And yeah, as, oh. like, as her like and her mom comes by. And Pacino doesn't say really anything during that at all, just like hugs that lady. But it says like everything about like what we've heard him talk about, but just like really displays it fully. They're like, oh no, even this guy who like would go on this like long monologue about the mi- baby in the microwave is still just like I in the moment I can't fucking handle this. And I mean he fucking hugs her. Like it is a bear hug. Like he hugs her once, she lets go and he pulls her in even tighter. Like it is a, it's a moment. Like it, it, that's one of the things where, you know, like you do feel bad for his wife in this movie. Of course, like he's completely neglectful. He's all this stuff, but you kind of at that moment, like, oh, I get why he doesn't share, and why he's so closed off because he has to deal with this horrible shit. That's when he has his like emotional like feelings that with that aren't rage or sort of being shut off as consoling the mother of a young 14 year old prostitute who was just butchered. Like it's, it's just, it's so fucked. And you just, you feel for him in that moment. I mean, you feel for the mother more, of course. Good, good Lord. But you get why the Vincent Hanna character is how he is and why he is the way he is. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I do appreciate about this movie is like Michael Mann often sort of gets the criticism about like sort of his inability to do like write female characters from like a lot of critics and I think this is one of the, the better examples for me with, like, you mentioned, like, even that side character. But even, like, when you get down to, say, like, um, you know, like, Dennis Haysbert's wife, when she just, like, watches the news report at the bar, and then is just, like, completely dumbstruck by what's going on there. Absolutely destroyed. I mean, her moment, I'm proud of you. Yes. You know, oh, and he's all fucking drunk. And then he has that amazing emotional breakdown and crying. Good drunk acting. Yes. I think generally, for sure, on that, especially, like, Val Kilmer as, like, sad drunk, like, hungover, particularly when he wakes up at Robert De Niro's house and shit like that. Wonderful. Um, but but even, like, um, Amy Brenneman also, I think, is great in terms of, like, her relationship with De Niro, where you can tell these are two very, like, socially awkward people who have not really had, like, many relationships but it feels like so genuinely earnest where they're like, they have that conversation uh, about just like, oh yeah, you know, the Fiji and shit like that. It feels very much like, oh, there is actually a relationship that's growing here. But at the same time, you can tell that like, as things go along, it's like, this is never going to work out. And he keeps no, never, saying, never. and he keeps saying that thing constantly about like, you know, in 30 seconds flat, you got to be willing to leave everything. And he keeps saying it more and more as like, a, oh, you're trying to convince yourself. This is like... <laughs> And he does it, you know, and that's the thing too about that. I agree with you about Michael Mann and sort of female characters, but also what he did to sort of even give the Amy Brennan character, she made the first move, you know, it's not him hitting on her. She's genuinely like into him and, and she wants to ask him about his book because she works there and all that stuff. Like she, she definitely pursues him first. And even Ashley Judd's character, very strong character in the movie. Like she's just tired of fucking Chris's bullshit and she's been having an affair. It's a sort of, you get the idea to get back at him in a way, you know, and it's just, it, it, but all she really cares about is her son, Dominic. I guess the point of this movie is none of these people can have real lives and real relationships and mm-hmm. fulfillment. It's just not going to happen. All these people are cursed. Like to live and die basically alone. 
whether that's the rules they set for themselves with the Tamiro character or just because of the lifestyle and the job he does with the Vincent Hanna character. You're going to be miserable. Well, are you saying that Ashley Jet won't have a fun time with Hank Azaria, who seems like such a good guy? He's a good guy. <laughs> and, you know, also, Kilmer's the only one that gets away, at least that we know of. He drives off, they let him go. Yes. So Again, that, that Kilmer gets away. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, but unlike, say, a Danny Trejo, which that whole oh. sequence, his ending is so fucking brutal. Best acting he's ever done. Yeah. It's so disturbing. I remember when I first saw it, and I was genuinely, like, kind of freaked out by it. Just the way he is laying there and he's fucked up and beat to shit and bloody and the way he's talking. Oh, it's so fucked up. When he ends up crying because he finds that his wife's dead and Mm -hmm. he just like, he's like not even making human crying noises because his like entire system's been fucked up. But it's horrible way he's been beaten. It's just like, it's so brutally upsetting. And then of course it's like, I I can't go on. She's dead. My love's dead. You gotta kill me, man. Oh, and also, Fucking Henry Rollins and William Fickner? Yep. <laughs> it's so funny. And dude, Henry Rollins, big motherfucker in this. Al Pacino beats his ass. Yeah. <laughs> he whoops his ass. But tell me that, you know, that's the other thing about this movie. There's so many scenes that like, oh, God, I hope he gets him. I hope he does this. And they don't do it a lot. But the De Niro actually getting to William Fickner scene and the De Niro getting to Wayne Grove scene are two of the most like, satisfying moments in film history especially in this one you're like yeah get that motherfucker and he, it happens and he gets him it's great but what's interesting also is that like it's just like that momentary rush of like oh this is great and then you realize oh wait no this just made everything so much more complicated for you oh, yeah no him going after Wayne Grove fucked him yeah yep that was it that's what that's what got him killed basically and you know I've heard a lot of people don't like the um sort of finale bit with Pacino and De Niro on the sort of jetway. And they're like, Oh, it carries on a little too long and everything. I think it's fucking tense. I think it's great. Uh, and I, I, I never understood the sort of criticism of that. Especially. I love the fact that this movie is from like, from a Michael man who's often accused of being like very machismo sort of like, Oh, he's like very like, you know, male chauvinist sort of director type. I like the fact that this movie about like these two guys where in any other movie, it's just like, Oh, they're facing off against each other. It's their final confrontation. It's very plain. Just the way that he ends up getting shot De Niro and they Mm -hmm. hold hands. And that's the end of the movie. two dudes holding hands. It's just like, yeah, that's, that's what it really just comes down. Just like, they're both like sad, scared children who want to hold each other's hands because they're lost. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we haven't talked a lot about sort of, like, the actual craft here, which is stellar, especially considering, like, the big thing every time. Um, This movie, I think, has become a, like, now that I own it, is definitely going to be a classic example of a ride the volume on the remote thing, because uh-huh. the sound mix in this movie is incredible where every all the dialogue is like very low and subtle like we were talking about just like unless it's Pacino yelling something um but then once we get to like the actual like all the stuff with the bullets going off like that entire like bank heist scene the sound mix is so like brutal we're just like oh god did someone fire a gun (laughs) near me it's just like it's that good yeah it's absolutely incredible I and that was done on design obviously probably one of the best shot bank robbery sequences of all time and just it's so tense but it's not shaky cam or none of that stuff like it's you know once they get into the street and the the chase that's where you get a little bit more of the not necessarily shaky cam but it becomes more um frantic and chaotic but when they're in the bank i mean the camera is fixed 
like these guys, it, it's sort of like they know what they're doing. They're professionals, all this stuff. It's when one thing goes out of control, when chaos just erupts. And they, you know, they're, they're so good, they don't really plan for anything to go wrong in that aspect because they've been able to sort of deduce and walk away if it's getting too, you know, the heat <laughs> is getting a little too much and stuff. But this movie, it's like they have to go for this last score and they do. And when the shit hits the fan, I mean, it just becomes pure chaos. Yeah, I think what works about that is the fact that Michael Mann is so clinical as a director, where you're just seeing all this and it feels very like procedural, and you're like, no, this is exactly how you would do any of these things. This is exactly how you would like go from you know, uh, you know the bank robbers to the degree that like, especially like that opening, the truck heist that happens mm-hmm. has apparently been like very much copied by real criminals who just watched Heat. And talks explicitly about like being inspired by Heat because it feels like so oh, grounded and realistic. Uh, that you're just like, oh, yeah, I could do this. No problem. <laughs> It'll totally work. Yeah, and like I said, man, it's the first time I can remember like watching a movie and really appreciating the cinematography. I mean, the scene alone where it's Neil and um, his girlfriend sitting on sort of the hill or on the deck, and it's just the full like sort of L.A. skyline behind them, and it's this weird muted blue. and all. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous to look at, and Obviously, this is my favorite Michael Mann movie. I mean, followed very closely by, like, Collateral. But I think this is his best shot film. Yeah, and I think, and especially considering, like, you can see a lot of things with this movie where the the influence is so, like, wide-ranging. We're obviously, like, you know, Christopher Nolan cribs so much for The Dark Knight. But even when you hear people, like, apparently Wes Anderson cribs a lot from this movie. He says, just like, yeah, I, I love Heat and the way it's constructed. It's kind of weird, but, like, when you actually watch, it's like, oh, yeah, it's very symmetrical, and that makes sense, the way that, like, Michael mm-hmm. even just, like, films people. <laughs> it, it kind of works. <laughs> I mean, and I've seen interviews on talk shows and stuff like that. Like, forgive me, I don't remember exactly the guests, but I've seen several where, you know, this movie is brought up. Where, like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, our visual inspiration was, like, like a heat, or, you know, there's scenes of dialogue that happen in movies, or conversation between protagonists and antagonists, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, the diner scene from Heat, definitely. I mean, even Scorsese, sort of the scene with uh, Nicholson DiCaprio in The Departed, he, like, watched Heat for a part of that. Like, he's like, oh, this is so great. And I completely see it. Yeah, I agree. And it's so interesting given the fact that, like, this movie, when it did come out back in 1995, it was successful and liked, but it feels like it kind of, like, it wasn't necessarily, like, the biggest possible thing that you feel like it should be, necessarily, until it went out on TV. And that's where a lot of people sort of, like, really glommed onto it, which is, like, oh, it was on, like, a TNT or whatever, and so everyone just saw it because it was on all the time, and it was also so fucking long. Like, I think even Michael Mann put in certain scenes for the TV edit, where it's just like, oh, I don't know if we can quite, it's three hours long, so I don't know if we can do this. Like, oh, you want it four with commercials? I got some shit for you. I'll put more stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this was definitely that. Uh, that's, I, I don't know, that might be the first place I saw it on like a TNT or something like that, because this was definitely constantly in the rotation. Um, and every couple of years, it'll just pop up. You know, on TNT or TBS or something like that, or even TCM. I, I love that, you know, even your Blu-ray cut came out or 4K cut, where it's like giving people who are digital collectors now who might not have ever seen this a chance to like rediscover it or discover it for the first time. Like this is sort of one of those movies that I feel like it's timeless. Like we just talked about like, a, you know, a dog day afternoon where I think 
you know, you show people that movie now and they're like, wow, that's still a fucking good movie. 50 some years later. I think Heat's going to have that type of power too. Or even down to like, you know, we mentioned like the TV element of it. Like at the same time, this is also a movie that pops up every six months or so on Netflix. And anytime it's on Netflix, it's usually in like that top 10 sphere where people are just like watching it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this movie, it's a classic. It's already a bona fide, like for real classic. It, I think that what really helps to benefit that sort of that timeless element that you're mentioning uh, with it is like it still very much feels like it takes place in 1995, but because all these like bigger themes are so universal and the way that it's shot feels like so grounded and realistic, it just feels like oh I am just in this particular era of LA. Like down to like the the way this movie shoots LA. I think it's so fascinating where it feels just like, oh, this is like a real place. This isn't like the sort of glitz and glamour of like Hollywood LA, but it also isn't like depraved crime ridden in a way that feels like, oh, this is like a junkier action movie. It's just like, no, this is a real place. And just everybody who you see, like all the like extra work in this movie is so fascinating, particularly during that whole bank heist sequence where just the extras that we see, you get more immersed in like, oh my God, we're actually in the middle of a confrontation that's existing in our real world than you ever get from like any other place that, like where they try and make it look like, oh, we're on a city street and like say, I don't know, a Marvel superheroes coming by. They rarely ever show fucking actual people <laughs> like living their lives when shit like this happens and this feels like it's one of the rare examples once again where it's just like oh i'm in a real place in the middle of this real moment and i feel like everything is like collapsing along with like right alongside these actual characters who i've been invested in yeah absolutely i mean and when they're like in the grocery store parking lot like the people feel like they're genuinely scared and they're genuinely afraid and like this is crazy shit that's happening to them and you're scared for these people like these innocent people that's the other thing all these people just feel like innocent bystanders caught up in the middle of this doesn't feel like anybody's i guess that's yeah it's a good way to put it it's so grounded that it, it feels like it's real people caught in the middle of this chaos it doesn't feel like a whole big scene with a bunch of extras in it like sometimes it can like you genuinely are worried for these people yeah I mean, especially just considering, you know, the, the, there's a fear whenever you watch one of these, especially in like a modern age of like, oh, these like, you know, the copaganda or like the crime elements of it. Like, is it glorifying all that? I would argue it really isn't. There's like cool elements that we're talking about, but they all feel like they're commenting on the idea of like, oh, you think this is like really cool in the moment. You have to, that human kind of like satisfaction, like, oh, I killed Wayne Grow or I did, um, I pulled off like this part of this like massive heist or all this other stuff but it really marinates you in just the fact that it's like oh yeah but any of those moments are like fleeting and ultimately meaningless when it's like oh i have to like live the rest of my life after that how the fuck do i do that (laughs) yeah exactly like say they get away from this heist you know and they all survive what is the next fucking step where can these guys go where they won't be endlessly hunted for the rest of their lives there's a certain finality to kind of every sort of story arc in this movie like it's all going to come to a fucking crashing end nobody's getting out of this unscathed or happy like it's not going to happen in this movie everybody sort of suffers it's a bleak ending for everyone yes um you know on that note adam we do have another movie to talk about so (laughs) you have anything else to add to that bleak ending about heat any final thoughts uh like i said it's my favorite movie of all time uh for several reasons the acting the cinematography the construction of it the deconstruction of a familiar genre uh doing things different uh yet similar to everything you've ever seen it's it's just it's unlike any movie that exists i don't really care about a prequel i mean of course i'm going to watch it it's my favorite film 
but I just I think as a standalone, this is the greatest heist movie that's ever been made, and it is like I said, just my personal favorite film. Yeah, I'm curious about that because it's uh, Heat Two based on like the book that Michael Mann wrote, and I've heard apparently very good things about that book, and he's uh, supposedly going to do that after that uh, Ferrari movie. That's going to be coming out later this year. Uh, it's his first movie in a while. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm curious, if nothing else, because Michael Mann is doing it. I'm much more fascinated. Like, if anyone else was doing it, I would not give a shit. But, man, um, I'm, you know, if he wants to do something else with these characters, I'm at least curious to see what he does. And, uh, yeah, because, I mean, this movie, it's, it's like you mentioned, it's amazing. It does uh, such a great job of getting you fully immersed in this kind of, like, crime story in a way that doesn't feel like it's glorifying it to any degree. It's just, like, so well put together. So much of, like, the great dialogue, so much of the great, like, you know, very technical elements of it, but also all the performances. It's an amazing movie. A great sort of five out of five movie, for sure. But now, uh, let's get to another one of those, at least for me, with uh, my choice here for this final episode, um, my favorite movie of all time, genuinely, as I've said many times, Little Shop of Horrors, 1986. It all began in this little shop. Oh, damn roses. Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happened. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. No, it's not this What kind of a weirdo plant is that, Seymour? Why did you get such a weird plant? A girl. You don't make a nice voice when you live on Skittero, Mr. Mushnick. Feed me Seymour. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Catch me now! I'm just a mean green mother from out of space and I'm... Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. So this version of Little Shop of Horrors came out December 19th, 1986 uh, from director Frank Oz based on the off-off Broadway play that was also based on the original uh, Roger Corman film um, and, uh, you know, is written by uh, Howard Ashman and who is the lyricist alongside uh, the guy who does the music, Alan Menken. And um, as I've mentioned before, I love this movie so much. It's so dear to me. But I'm curious, Adam, what is your relationship with this movie? Uh, when I was a kid, I, I saw it, and I was I love Rick Moranis. Uh, even as a kid, I was like, I, this guy's awesome. So I, I forget who showed it to me. I mean, who knows? It could have been my grandma or my probably one my same aunt I was mentioning because um, she was like the first person to show me Lost Boys and all that stuff. But I remember just sort of being dumbfounded by this movie, but also thinking that this might be one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And uh, that's coming from somebody who has never been a musical fan, but this is one of the few where mm-hmm. I'm like, I can watch this from front to back. I was sort of awestruck by it, especially the practical effects of the Audrey two plant and just the all around weirdness of everybody. Cause everybody's sort of strange. They're all weird caricatures and it's just, it's stuck with me for forever since I've seen it. And it's not one that I go back to that often um, because, like I said, I'm not a big musical guy. And I, I 
don't know how with repeated viewings how it would hold up i'm assuming it would i loved it when i first saw it i i just think it's such a sweet weird bizarre sort of oddly sleazy but yet sincere movie it feels like the john waters movie that john waters didn't make like if john waters would have got a hold of this source material it, it i don't know that it'd be much different no, yeah, I think what what works about it is it's like kind of thing with like Waters sort of has is that it feels like it's because it's this you know eighties movie that is very much commenting on like this takes place in like nineteen sixty two or so like early sixties and it feels very much like it's this weird middle ground between be- being very like ironic and like satirical about that period but also being very sincere about like the characters who are living in that period which i think is so like fascinating about this movie and i think why i like when i was younger i remember i was like always into movies little shop of horrors was distinctly when i first saw it on vhs when my dad introduced it to me was the first movie where i was just curious about like how did this like happen with like the audrey 2 character that you're mentioning mm-hmm. which is like i'd seen like you know like aliens and star wars and shit like that like practical effects but i was like this doesn't feel like one of those where i could tell like that's a puppet that's something that like is tangible this just feels like a living breathing creature i'm stunned that this is a thing i have to like find out how this happened it really got me down that rabbit hole of just like how was a movie like this made and really, really that kind of like behind the scenes aspect of it and i think like that was a big reason why like i watched it all the time i still have like a very uh, clear memory of being very young. We were on a road trip to North Carolina and I had one of those cathray tube TVs with a VHS built into it. I was watching Little Shop on that with headphones plugged into it and it, the TV was plugged into the cigarette lighter so I could like be watching it this whole time before I had any kind of portable like DVD player or anything like that because I just like watched this movie like so many times and I like I like know all the songs by heart I know so many like different distinct line deliveries I recognize stuff like oh there's a point where Ellen Green like squeaks before she even responds to to Rick Moranis about something like I know so much this movie by heart but I don't think I ever get tired of it despite how many times I've revisited it, I think because of what we're talking about, where it has its foot in the satiric and the ironic, but also another foot in just, like, treating this very silly concept so seriously. I think in a way that, yeah, I can see, like, a John Waters being, like, having a very similar take on the material, but I don't think, like, you could ever quite get it from somebody else besides, like, say, a Frank Oz, who directed this and comes from, like, the Muppets angle of things. It feels like it kind of has that same sort of spirit to it where it's anarchic, but also very like sweet and sincere. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that for sure. I mean, as long as I've known you, I've known this has been one of your favorite, if not your all-time favorite movie. And it's, uh, I mean, it definitely is always tracked. Yeah, I was going to say, does, does that like does that crack the code, as it were, <laughs> on Tom's? Where it's like, oh, that makes sense based on everything. <laughs> no, it does absolutely make sense. It, it's just, I, I totally understand, especially knowing your love of the Muppets and things like that. But at its core, you know, it's just such a cute little sweet story. Yeah, it's a mad-eating, blood-eating plant, but the stuff with, you know, Seymour and Audrey is so adorable. And the shop owner and all that stuff. Like, it, it's just, these characters, like you said, they're, a lot of them are just crazy manic characters. But in the world that this movie in particular, this version in particular, is setting up, like, yeah. They make sense that they would live here. Like, nobody feels out of place in this really strange sort of alternate New York slum. 
yeah, they're all heightened characters, but they all feel very real within, like, this world that's been created, mm -hmm. which is, like, the set design, like, this is, despite the fact that this movie takes place mostly, like, in a flower shop in, like, one street corner, like, it's such a massive, giant movie with, like, it took over, like, all, like, the big uh, sets on, like, the 007 stages and stuff that are in London. Would never happen again. I mean, with this kind of movie, necessarily, no. It would be like, you know, that's safe for like a James Bond movie, where it's just like you're taking up all the fucking big stages, not a movie about a singing plant that's based off an off-Broadway musical. <laughs> right, exactly. Based on a Roger Corman movie. Right, yes. It's, it's such a weird, unique beast that could really, I think, also only happen around like this period, where it feels like, oh, we're in the 80s, and David Geffen is such a big producer, just like, no, I've solved this issue, and I want to actually put it to the screen and even just certain elements of it like you're getting like a Rick Moranis who was very popular at that time obviously back when he was doing movies quite frankly um, but then having Ellen Green reprise her role from the stage show is so rare that like mm -hmm. so weirdly happens where they actually allow that to happen and I know there was like a bunch of different people where they wanted like Sidney Lauper at one point to play that part and even like Barbara Streisand was a big one the studio wanted would have oh, never God. worked at all. Cindy Lauper, I could see more than fucking Streisand. I think Ellen Green is like such a key to this movie, along with the, a big thing. I mentioned to Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Um, those two like created this play and uh, were like very instrumental in right after this, they would be the guys that would uh, do all the music stuff for uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and a lot of Aladdin. Sadly, Howard Ashman was dying around that time, so some of the songs aren't written by him in Aladdin. But I think all of those have a very similar kind of thing that we're talking about, where it's like there's a sweetness and a sincerity to like the Audrey character that like Alan Green beautifully portrays, but at the same time, it's like with that somewhere that's Green number. She earnestly wants to get out of this horrible place in her life. She wants to get away from this abusive man. She wants to be with Seymour, who she just feels she's not good enough for, but at the same time, her dream fantasy is like a really shitty, just like a suburban household where it's like, oh, we have Tupperware parties, and I spray like Lysol around, but like that, that there's like a satiric intent with that song, but also she's so sweet and earnest about it, it's like, you know, I want that very dull life for her, <laughs> she deserves that after having this fucked up life she's had Yeah, 100%, and that's probably my favorite song break of the whole movie, because it's so silly, but yet, such longing behind it and everything i just love that break and, and the way everything looks where it looks like it's a set um it, it's done so well uh yeah it's it's a really sweet sweet moment i do know also from talking to you and i think for a lot of people i don't know for me but this movie kind of uh single-handedly instilled your fear of dentistry <laughs> right of course with the the steve martin character um, who pops up here, and I think that's also, that is such a fascinating character where, given he's like an abusive asshole who, like, we see, like, physically abusing Audrey the whole time, and having him at the same time be, like, the Steve Martin funny character, that is such a hard thing to balance. I think the movie does a great job balancing that, where any of the scenes where he's actually abusive, he's upsetting and threatening, and just, like, all the other stuff is like, oh, he's, like, gets almost a sort of, like, affable sheen around him when he's doing stuff like talking to Rick Moranis. I love all this stuff which is like, uh, like is it Cecil? Uh, Cedric? And, and all that. And then when he looks at the plant and it's just like, nice plan. 
big. Like, he's got that Steve Martin sort of silly charm there to where you could see why Audrey maybe had an attraction to him initially, but then the any time he actually becomes threatening and upsetting, like either there or even like during the dentist stuff, it feels like he's an actual threat at the same time that he is an idiot. Yeah, I completely agree. He's so fucking fun in this. Uh, yeah, but when he's being threatened, he's generally terrifying. But I, it's just, I remember this movie because of Steve Martin in it, uh, just like, the black hair on Steve Martin was so alarming to me. <laughs> like it's the first time I ever saw Steve Martin with not white hair that I can remember. And it just kind of stuck with me. And then also like Steve Martin's on a motorcycle. Like what is happening in this? But uh, yeah, he's a great, I guess you could call him a villain, uh, but he's, he's really good in this. And it's you, kind of a one-off sort of performance from Steve Martin. Like he, he didn't really ever really play the heavy ever again. No, yeah, and especially considering he's not in the movie very much at all. He's in, like, mm. maybe three scenes of this movie, but he makes such an impression, which I think is also a big testament to the fact that this movie has, uh, like, so many great comedic talents from, like, this period, just doing cameos. We've got, like, the Bill Murray cameo, which is still fun. Probably one of my favorite Bill Murray deliveries in anything is, like, it's the professionalism that I respect <laughs> during his dentistry thing. Uh, but then you got, like, John Candy, Christopher Guest, so many. Who was your favorite cameo? Christopher Guest. Yeah. Because I completely forgot he was in it until watching it for this episode. When he shows up, I'm like, holy shit, that's Christopher Guest. Man, is he being weird. <laughs> like, it's just, he's, it's so robotic in his performance. Yeah, I might as well get $50 worth of roses. Can you break 100 No. Then no. I might as well get double. <laughs> like, this is Twice so as bizarre. many. Twice, Twice as many. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good one. I think John Candy is my favorite cameo. As oh, the so Wink Wilkinson radio host guy who just pops in with his hair that clearly looks like, oh, he's about to shoot uh, Spaceballs, like, right after this. Like, him and Rick are going to leave this set and go to the Spaceballs set <laughs> with, like, the barf haircut. But even, like, the whole, like, audio drama he portrays about just, like, oh, Lee, put back on your clothes. What if your husband came in? <laughs> it's so funny. And the machine gun bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> And even just also the weirdness where it's like Seymour waiting in the waiting room and there's like the little person with the giant nun ventriloquist dummy and the lady with the giant box that has like locks on it and stuff like that. Just even like background gags are like so immediately funny in this movie. Yeah, totally. And then again, though, just to get to the Audrey 2 at all, not only is it a masterful sort of puppet, maybe the best ever put on film. But the voice acting, too. It's so fucking good. It's so good. Like, it's so iconic to the point where I think, like, even my roommate came in when I was watching it, and he's like, what are you watching? I'm like, The Little Shop of Horrors. He's like, oh, I haven't seen that forever. I'm like, yeah, me neither, actually. I I really like it. And he goes, feed me. Like, people just know if you say, feed me, Seymour. They know what movie you're talking about. That's how iconic that fucking puppet is. Yeah, and that voice shattered. It's Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. So mm-hmm. the guy who was saying, like, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch and shit like that. The Audrey 2 character is one of my favorite examples of, like, a Faustian d- d- devil kind of character. Where you have that initial fascination, like, oh my god, it's a plant that can talk. And you even have, like, the, the growth, the various different stages where we're initially introduced to him as this little tiny plant that grows literally right in front of us. I think an amazing example where, like, that scene where he, like, bursts out of his little coffee can is so amazing and it's just like oh the like the puppets are like coming closer to the screen for that particular bit but then as things go up you see like this plant grow up and you're just like oh you're you're kind of like fascinating like a 
you know, a fantastical way about it. But then you realize, like, oh, no, wait, this is all because Seymour doesn't have the self-respect to be like, well, I, I don't, like, he doesn't want it for money, he doesn't want it for fame. He wants some kind of clout so he can have Audrey have some kind of interest. So Audrey, too, becomes that sort of gateway for him to be able to do that. And the way that that character immediately is, like, so fun and lively in a way that almost, like, contrasts, like, so much of the music is very, like, Motown-inspired, but he feels very much sort of like the beginnings of, like, the rock and roll 60s era, and even, like, how the music kind of contrasts with that. So it's like, oh, Audrey, too, is this, like, malevolent, like, new example, like, you could be a part of the future, you could progress forward, you could do something, like, giant and big, and you're, you kind of feel that attraction with, uh, you know, the Seymour character, where you're just like, oh, you know what, the promising all these big things. It's a fantastical plant monster. He might be able to do that for me. Maybe there's no ulterior motive here whatsoever. It, it, he's, it's such a perfect kind of like temptation character. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, Seymour just, not only does he love plants and all that, but yeah, he comes across this thing and he's almost like, it's a way out. Almost, or it could be. Or a way to him finally get Audrey, which, you know, the thing is Audrey's already like sort of into Seymour and they just don't know. It's sort of that sad thing but um i think a faustian sort of analogy is absolutely perfect i don't know why i never thought of that that's why you make the big bucks you could afford a little tv when going on vacation Ooh, la ti da but um yeah <laughs> I totally no, I, read faust and don't just know that from other tv shows and movies i've seen i'm well read i know what i'm talking yeah about. yeah no you've absolutely read it yeah it's that's an actually perfect analogy you know it's like it's promising him oh i can not in a way, but it, it, he can see the promise in it. Like, oh, we'll put it in the shop. We're going to make more money. People will start to notice me. Audrey will notice me that I'm not just a clumsy fuck up and I could do all this and blah, 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 blah. And even like Mr. Mushnick, who is such like a verbally abusive sort of like father figure for him, we're just like, well, I've only had known this life. I can get like beyond that and impress him, impress everybody, become something more than like a schmuck that I feel like I am. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which is beautifully displayed with, like, the downtown number, which we didn't talk about, but I love. Like, the Skid Row, like, the sort of the second number of this movie is so stellar with the people we haven't even mentioned as well, the Greek chorus that pops in mm-hmm. with uh, Tisha Martin-Campbell um, and Michelle Weeks and uh, Trisha Arnold as uh, Crystal Runnett and Chiffon, <laughs> which yep. is so funny. <laughs> Two of them, Gina and Pam from Martin. Yes, yes, yeah, very much so. Um, but they work so well as well. We're just like, oh, adding this like doo-wop group to like this story about like a giant plant. Like, how's, what sense does that make necessarily? And it's like, no, it works perfectly. We're just like they weave in and out of the story and they just feel kind of like the, the people who are just examining this from afar. But even when they end up being like part of it, we're just like we were went to school until fifth grade and then we split stuff like that. It feels like they're just perfectly a part of this like whole tapestry with this whole movie. Yeah, I agree. It's a very fun way to sort of push the story along and display the emotion of the characters, too. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing about this. Without them, I mean, the most iconic song in this is the title song. I mean, it's just everybody knows it. The beat sticks with you. Even if you don't know all the lyrics, obviously, you know, the Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. But it's just so iconic. It's absolutely iconic. Or even just the bit where they all do the, like, look out, look out, look out, look out. It's, like, Uh so perfectly shot and edited and everything. Um, But to get back to the Audrey 2 of it all, like, another amazing thing with this is just the... uh, You you obviously have, like, it's Lyle Conway did the uh, special effects stuff here, and he worked with uh, Frank Oz on, like, Muppets and stuff. And this is definitely, like, 
Frank Oz obviously having his toe, he had directed like Muppets Take Manhattan and had helped with like Dark Crystal with Jim Henson before. And this feels like him kind of dipping his toe where he still is like, I'm still doing like a big practical puppet thing. But also I want to do shoot this in the same way that like with, you know, the Muppet movies. We talked about this when we talked about the Muppet movie. The way that the Audrey 2 character is shot just feels like it's another character in the room. It's not like a big special effects thing. It just feels like, oh, this is another actor in this scene alongside Rick Moranis, despite the fact that in any shot where you see Rick Moranis or another human with the creature, um, it is all shot at like 16 frames per second. So literally, like, Rick Moranis is like mouthing along to the song at a slower speed for that particular shot so they can get those lip syncs perfect with the creature and it's like some of the most amazing sort of practical effects stuff where because of like those lip movements and like how seamless all of it is even stuff like later on when audrey 2 like grabs the counter and moves itself forward from its plant pot that's there it's just like there you can't get anything more perfect with that in practical or like cg i would argue it just feels like this is an actual living being who agreed and signed on and contracted to be in this movie not a special effects creation 100 percent. that's exactly what it feels like it's one of i mean the escapism level of that sort of effect is just i don't know that with just a full-size puppet like maybe like a job of the hut or something like that we're like oh that's a real thing but i mean i i'm hard-pressed to find another one another example like audrey that it's just sort of yep that's real you, you buy it almost immediately, and it just stays with it. It's pretty great, man. I, I mean, I totally understand why this movie is so beloved and, and why you love it. I mean, I'm not saying I don't love it. I'm, it's not as ingrained into my childhood as it is, might be yours, but it's just, it's kind of a, a magical thing, right? Like, nothing like this exists other than this, and nothing like this has ever existed since. I heard there were talks of doing a remake like a little while ago. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm happy it hasn't happened because I have a feeling it would just be a CGI thing. Yeah. hundred percent would be like a giant CGI. Yeah. And you can't, it, it wouldn't work. It would not work without the practical effect. And plus just no, because how are they going to do it? Are they going to, are they going to do it like this where it's funny and, and whimsical and yet also kind of wild? No, they're either going to be it to go straight comedy with it or it's going to be a, dark version and i don't want any of that yeah like because there's always that weird thing where it's like when you remake a movie of a stage show where it's like technically that happens anytime they restage a little shop of horrors and i've seen like some like the stage productions and everything and i have fun with those like i there's great footage of it was at like the hollywood bowl and ellen green reprised her role but uh seymour was played by jake gyllenhaal and like that's fun I don't, I, I don't mind that idea of just, like, oh, going to a show and seeing a different version as opposed to, like, mm-hmm. a forever, like, preserved version on film. That's just, I don't think you can really, like, outdo what this movie does. Except, of course, for, we haven't mentioned it yet, but a big thing with this movie is that uh, in the original stage show, uh, the ending is not nearly as happy. They originally shot a much darker ending. Audrey 1 ends up getting killed by Audrey 2, and, like, as she's dying, and Seymour has her in her arms, she says, no, I want you to feed me to the plant and so you can be successful and continue and then after that point uh, Audrey 2 ends up getting sold by like this uh, the character is played by Jim Belushi in the theatrical cut and is played by Paul Dooley in the original ending ends up selling it uh, all over the United States and spreads around where the 
you know, the plants take over the earth basically by the end. It's like a big massive ending with like all sorts of giant, um, you know, puppets and model work and just a lot of chaos and destruction that happens. That didn't test very well. Frank Oz kind of put it as like, I knew that like when we were doing the test screenings, like the, the audience felt betrayed that these characters they loved so much ended up getting killed this way and it tested so poorly they shot a completely new ending. That was the ending I grew up with and I'm curious, Adam, I sent you the ending and uh, the alternate ending that was originally done. Did you end up catching that and how did you feel about that versus the theatrical ending? Yeah, I've seen the original sort of ending with Audrey like, taking over the bridge and all that stuff. I've seen that before. I've never seen the sort of cut you sent me where it ties it all together. I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, I like it. I think it's kind of crazy, and it's like, I can't believe we're doing this. But some doesn't sit right with me. Like This is definitely one of those movies where you want to see these crazy kids succeed and, and live and get together and all that. And it just, the way that one goes, I mean talk about even like how we talked about our last week it's such a bleak ending where it's so fucked up but as i sort of alluded to before like if like a waters were to do this movie it would 100 percent be that ending like audrey would be dead and the plant would take over and all this stuff uh so i don't know how i feel about it i i i like the ending that i that you grew up with i grew up with i like the theatrical ending i think it's just because it's what i'm used to and it's I don't know, man. It's pretty fucking rough, dude. Like, it's crazy. Especially uh, the the reprise of somewhere that's green that Ellen Green says. I like, know. so upsetting. It's, it's so upsetting. tragic. <laughs> but it, I, I, I will say the practical effects of it all and everything of the Audrey 2 getting big and going down a city and crushing the bridge and on the Empire State Building, there's helicopters and the army and all. It's fucking so good and so crazy and what a feat. So I, I guess I, it kind of sucks that that got cut because it's so impressive. But I don't know. I, I, I get why test audience would be like fucking bummed out. I totally get it. You know, it's interesting because I didn't find out about this ending until it was around the 90s because there was the whole infamous factor where this there was a work print sort of like black and white version that was released on DVD initially in like 98. And then David Geffen was like, no, what the fuck? We're supposed to, like, I wanted to restore that and maybe even re-release it in theaters. So recall the DVDs. All gone. So I I didn't own this movie on anything but VHS until that Blu-ray came out where they restored everything in, like, color and put out the director's cut version. So that's, like, 2012. I went so long without owning this movie on, like, a preferable format <laughs> um, because I was waiting for, like, that ending. And even when I was able to, like, watch the the work print version of it, I kind of had that hesitation as well, where I was just like, but this isn't what I'm used to. This isn't, like, what I, like, grew up loving. But when I ended up watching the director's cut version where it's, like, fully restored with the ending, you know, with the original movie, like, leading up to that, I just realized that is definitely the ending that makes way more sense. And it's definitely the ending that actually works thematically with what's been going on with this whole story. Like, I get being upset about, like, Audrey and, you know, Seymour ended up dying. That's clearly the intent. That's what works perfectly for the story is, like, you have these two characters who you love so much who, if they had just gotten, you know, over whatever self-doubt they had about themselves and, like, actually embrace each other on an emotional level like they do in the Suddenly Seymour number, which is amazing. My favorite musical number of the whole movie. Such a perfect, like, 
back and forth between those two characters. A beautiful duet. But if they had just done that at some earlier point, if they had like gotten over themselves, they would be able to like not have any of these hangups. But one of them signed that deal with the devil, with this Faustian bargain, and it ends up completely fucking him and everyone else on Earth over in a way where like I think that totally makes sense. And I've really come to terms with just the fact that when you watch the new ending, it's so clearly rushed and it's so like doesn't make any fucking sense with like any of the things that have been established previously in the movie at all. It's so quick. And I think just quite frankly, bad. This feels like also was a crucial movie. Like that moment, that one where I first watched it is kind of why I'm so averse to kind of like nostalgia baiting sort of element. We're just like, well, I grew up with this. Therefore I immediately am like, so clearly attached to that. Like, I think that kind of broke me where it's like, oh, wait, no, sometimes something that, like, I grew up with is the inferior version of a great story that I loved. And I think that is a lesson that I think more people, quite frankly, especially in our modern culture, can kind of, like, maybe take a lesson from. Of just, like, just because you saw this, like, you're so used to this particular version of this story, doesn't mean that you can't, like, actually find a better version or evolve from it or anything like that. And I think that I, I vastly prefer that original ending, quite frankly. I mean, I can't disagree with you. I don't know how I personally feel about it. I don't know which one I think is better, but I do definitely agree with you. Like, hey, you can let shit go, and and it's all right. I think that's a big problem we've had in cinema and television and music in general for the last five to ten years. It's just because something was good when you were a kid does not make it good now, and you don't have to be a fucking prick about it. Yeah, but I will give credit. The theatrical ending at least also is probably the funniest I've ever found Jim Belushi. I'll give it that much for sure. Yeah, I'll give it that. Oh, yeah, definitely. When they start doing the little bit of suddenly Seymour, and they're just like, kids, if you could stop singing for just one second. <laughs> I think it's actually a really funny bit of that ending. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I, I I think we've uh, pretty much gone through everything about Little Shop of Horrors. Adam. So any final thoughts about this 86 version of Little Shop of Horrors? Like I said, it, it's a very sweet movie. It's one of the few musicals I can actually sit through and the practical effects alone i mean make it worth watching i i mean it gets recognition in sort of some circles but i don't think the practical effects of this movie well lot like say something like the thing would be or alien or some of these other movies that you know in, in the genre films that are thought of, of like just practical effects masterpieces i would put audrey 2 against any of those and i i guarantee you would hold up just as well it's it's sort of a marvel and a just such a wonderful achievement that I don't think it's nearly enough attention as it should. So I'm curious then, do you think that the um, the fact that this was nominated for a special effects Oscar but lost to Aliens, do you think that was a superior win? Maybe just on the level uh, that's in Aliens, I could see why. I mean, the Audrey 2 character has way more personality and it's way more like you want to see it more and it, it, you know, for something that's lit the way it is and has such interaction and speaking and lip movements that it does. I mean, I, I don't know, man. That's a tough call. I mean, I, I get why Aliens won, but I would be totally fine if Little Shop of Horrors won as well. Yeah, we have to wait until another Rick Moranis movie for the Xenomorph to have as much music and singing and personality <laughs> just the year after. Oh my god, it was the year after. That's 100% right. Yes. Um, the, the, the Xenomorph teamed up with John Candy and Rick Moranis. <laughs> For Spaceballs. Um, but it's also interesting given, um, it, by the way, this was also nominated for Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, which is the only original number. And it's a great, fun number. But that lost to Take My Breath Away. 
from Top Gun, which I would firmly say I would prefer the Mean Green Mother win. <laughs> Honestly, if nothing else, because it was the first song ever nominated for an Oscar that had severe profanity in it. With like, keep the thing, keep the it, keep the creature, it don't mean shit. I don't know, man. Take My Breath Away is pretty iconic. Yeah, sure, but it's uh, in, in context of Top Gun. It's like what against like that weird fridge like sex food scene. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I haven't seen Top Gun in fucking years because it's not good. <laughs> true, true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've said a lot about this movie already. I've been very effusive. Um, it's definitely my favorite movie. I just I, I never grow tired of it. I love it so much, and I love even when people hear that's my favorite movie. There's either just like, oh, I never would have thought of that as a favorite movie, but I guess that makes sense. And even like people who uh, have not seen it before are just like, oh, I, I, I have no idea about this movie. I'm curious to see it. I think it's definitely one of those that's like you mentioned it's appreciated and has sort of like a cultural, like a cult classic status. But I think definitely it feels like one that kind of is like of this 80s era is not nearly as like beloved as like a lot of the other sort of like either comedies, horror movies, sci-fi movies, any of those things of this, like, 80s period. It's not, I don't think, as beloved as some others. I kind of get, like, in that sort of, we mentioned the nostalgia train of it, like those I love 80s, like, you know, nostalgia trips and everything. It's not it's, it's not quite as, like, up there as some of the, the more traditional kind of ones, like your Goonies is and such. But, um, yeah, I, I love this movie so much. I think it's a, it's a very much a Rosetta Stone for how much I love, like I mentioned, like, horror movies, comedy especially this 80s comedy this was my introduction to a lot of these people like moranis and everybody else you know the musical genre the um, sci-fi elements of it it's such a great example also just like a genre mashup that you wouldn't think like oh that feels like you're putting hat on the hat kind of thing with this kind of movie but it never feels like that for me it just feels like so perfectly constructed especially even with that you know director's cut version of it i think it does such a stellar job with it and uh, yeah love this movie so dearly and now, um, for the rest of the show, we're going to go into sort of like a reminiscing mode. We're not doing a traditional double redo, but you know what? Just one more time, for old time's sake, everybody, let's hear that song. Double redo. 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 That works. There it is. Our beloved double redo theme, which we recorded together. Greatest thing I've ever done. It's, it's pretty amazing, honestly. I just love how we, the way we did that behind the scenes, everybody. Um, we had that music track, and I was just like, all right, Adam, you do some like weird scatting or whatever to that, and then I'll do it afterward, and I just combined the two of them. <laughs> it took, I mean, it was sort of like five minutes, and we were like, okay, let's do it. To the degree that you hear that at the very end, where I'm just like, yeah, that'll work. I just kept that in for the whole time we used that fucking intro. Uh, but yeah, so now, Adam, it's time we did some, you know, reminiscing now that we're on this last episode. Um, let's go back. Let's do a little walk down memory lane, as it were, where, um, you know, we started the show on an interesting little whim uh, where I had left, you know, the horror news radio stuff that I was doing uh, for five years previous. Um, and this kind of came very suddenly where I was just like, oh, I'm left without any kind of, you know, like, audio thing but I want to start on my own and I had known you through doing a lot of those uh like the decades of horror like 1980s stuff I believe the first thing we ever talked about was they live yep I think that's correct when I was right where I had you on as a guest and uh, we had become you know sort of like fast buds I had you on like 
nearly every episode, especially the 90s and beyond show I was doing over there. And then I, you were the first person I kind of went to with like, hey, would you want to like host a, a show? And you were just like, yeah, sure. Let's link something up. And uh, the rest is history. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, I have been a guest host on every iteration of the Hoarders Radio slash Gruesome Magazine, whatever you want to call it, show other than the main feed show. I was kind of looking to just not do guest hosting er- anymore. And I was like, eh, maybe I'll just get out of podcasting. or Maybe I'll think about starting my own. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I had tried a bunch of different little things that didn't really pan out and stuff. So I was kind of getting, eh, maybe I'm good. And then, yeah, you reached out. And I was like, oh, okay, perfect. And then, uh, yeah, five years ago. Yeah. And it still is amazing that we were able to keep this, quite frankly, going. As long as the longest can. job I've ever had. <laughs> Same at this yeah. point, <laughs> uh, technically. Um, but it, it, it's so weird, especially considering when you like, if you ever go back to those earlier episodes, like our first episode was uh, Iron Man and uh, Ghost, Ghost Riders, like yeah. a Marvel thing. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, yeah. Um, it's interesting just going back. And at that time, like we were still very fresh and we weren't quite sure, but it's weird how, like, the show has evolved, obviously. I think we've evolved as podcasters, but the vibe never felt, like, that different the whole time. We still just had, like, that, hey, let's get together for, like, an hour and a half and just have fun. Yeah, bullshit. Shoot the shit. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it hasn't really changed much at all, I mean, other than audio quality and, and adding new segments and new ideas. But for the most part, yeah, it's kind of, the, if you go back and listen to the first episode, it, you can really follow the lines of where to where we are now quite easily. Yeah, and I, I always thought, especially with the show, I've talked to you many times about this, but I loved how, like, we kind of brought out different things with each other, where I would argue, like, I kind of went for more of, like, the, oh, I'm the allegedly academic guy who, like, knows more about, like, the specific terms about film, and you were just, like, the guy who just wanted to come in and bullshit about movies that you liked, and we just kind of, I think, brought out both of those sides in each other after that point. I think that's like a big reason why we kind of like were able to go on for as long as we did. Right. Yeah. I get, I mean, so basically to break down, we just said, you're the genius. I'm the idiot. Great. <laughs> Great. No, yeah, no, that's a hundred percent true. That's hundred percent accurate. I mean, I know. And the thing is like, I know a lot of the technical aspects of movies and film. I mean, a huge film fan. I have been forever. Uh, but I just, I struggle sometimes with, my own dialogue and it's like eh, i'm not going to try to stumble over that word so instead of saying like you know i really thought this the cinematography uh in this ratio really worked i'll be like it looked fucking great <laughs> like i'll just i'll just go to the lowest hanging fruit just so i can say what i want to say and to be fair anyone who listens to me can also tell like okay he knows i guess more than adam might but not that much like at the same time i just stumble with more confidence over my dialogue yeah and you know the thing is i don't think i don't think thomas knows more than me and and thomas might know more than me you might know more than me with certain genres of film or certain studios and things like that but i think there's a lot of things that that has happened on our show quite a few times you'll you'll pick a movie and be like i have never even heard of this and i've done the same thing to you several times which I'm curious about, what are some of your favorite sort of discoveries for the show? Movies that you discovered because, you know, I picked it, or you ended up, like, just doing it randomly because you hadn't seen the movie before? Uh, well, most of that, I mean, I would say this show is single-handedly, like, sort of responsible for my getting into, like, the A24 films and things like that. Like, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily something I would have necessarily got into, but, you know, because of the show, you know, movies like Portrait of a Lady on Fire or... yeah. 
Moonlight and things like that that I might have not have watched to begin with or going like Tar. I know we didn't cover it on the show, but I would have never watched Tar if it wasn't for the show and watching tar and just being like, Holy fucking shit, like blown away by it. You know, it's not even just movies we covered for the show, but sort of movies I watched on my own that I probably never would have. Uh, but because of things I was introduced on the show, that's really been my favorite part of it is, uh, sort of discovering new genres or avenues of film and filmmaking that I probably would have just never really gotten into. I mean, you know, full disclosure, I was sort of one of those, and I'm not trying to talk bad about people who love horror movies or genre movies at all, but I was definitely one of those very horror. I ain't interested sort of guys uh, for a while. And then, uh, and you know, to be honest though, it started a little bit before the show because of a 24 with movies like the witch and stuff like that, like mm-hmm. morning. And I'm like, Oh, okay, that's cool. But then doing this show sort of opened up my eyes to even more movies that are, you know, sort of had genre tinges and then, those genres just sort of disappear with the next movie. And then the next movie would have another genre just, and the next movie would do this. It just sort of uh, changed my opinion of film as a whole. I always wanted to feel like excited by a movie and I feel like, Oh, this is fucking so fun or this is so cool. Oh my God. Iron man. I've loved Iron man forever and blah, 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 blah. Um, or man, this is so cheesy. Look at this. Like, Oh, this shitty eighties ninja movie. How awesome. Then it's now it's like, this movie gutted me and I love it for it. <laughs> like, you know, that type of shit. And I never really, yeah, I, I sort of stayed away from those movies. I had those movies growing up, like, uh, of mice and men and which John Malkovich gutted me as a child. And, um, which I haven't seen it since I'm assuming doesn't hold up, you know, Shawshank redemption and movies like that, that just broke my heart as a kid. And so I kind of stayed away from those getting older. Cause I'm like, I don't really want to feel like that. Plus the mice, personal life and things like that there's certain times where i'm going through shit and i'm like i don't need to watch some dark and bleak i'm not gonna do it but because of the show like even when i'm going through those dark and bleak times i can watch something like that and yeah it's going to fucking crush me but in a weird way it's a good heartbreak because like man i'm fucked up because this movie but as one of the greatest things i've ever seen and uh yeah, so like I said, this because of the show and because of you and even guests who have come on or picked other things or had discussions, like it's definitely changed my sort of appreciation of independent cinema and other genres as a whole. Well, I also I, I just love that element of it where like there's that mentality that I really don't like about film fans where it's like, oh, you haven't seen blank? Like, what are you doing? Why are you even... Like, yeah, that's fucked up. I hate that about? shit. Yeah. Yeah, that gatekeeping kind of shit I really hate. As opposed to, like, when I'm able to introduce a movie to you or somebody else, like some guest who, like, will pop on or just a friend in, like, my real life in general. I just, I love that where, like, I'm able to introduce it to somebody and, like, yeah, this this fucking ruled. Like, I think one of my favorite examples of that, Moonlight. I think it's an, yeah. a key example of that where yeah. you just like came on the show and you were like in full like love with that fucking movie. Still, still, I love that movie. I I haven't watched it since and for a very good reason. I mean, that movie is a fucking movie. Like it's going to put me in a mood and uh, I know that, but it's one of those that like I've recommended to everybody. I, I've been able to talk to about it or tell about it. And, uh, you know, and vice versa. I didn't even think to mention that. But, you know, for me, sh- having you watch movies that I grew up with and loved in the 80s and stuff like that, and have you sort of watch them and be like, oh, this is pretty fucking great. I have two examples. One is Lady Hawk. Yes. Lady Hawk's fucking great. And yeah. then uh, Strange Days. I'm like, you should watch Strange Days. And you ended up loving it. 
And, uh, you know, those are two of my biggest examples. But then it's also fun to recommend you to movies I grew up with that I loved. And you're like, dude, this is shit. And then I'll watch it again. I'm like, no, come on. And I'm like, oh, it is. Boondock Saints. Well, yeah, Boondock Saints is an amazing example of that. Where, like, I, that was a Patreon poll. They voted for it. And you were kind of like dreading, like, oh, I don't know. I, is it bad, Thomas? I don't know if it isn't. It's like, oh, Adam, I got to sit you down, buddy. We got to, we have to hash this it's out. Bad. It's yeah. really <laughs> I mean, and I think another great example of that with, but in terms of you introducing me to one is something like, even though I was aware culturally it was like such a big movie and I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to like sit down and watch it. Like Ghost is a great example of that for me where I hadn't watched it until we covered it on the show. I was like, oh, this movie's fucking amazing. I don't get why everyone downplays it. It's so fucking great. Ghost is the shit. I don't understand why people like kind of fuck with that and shit on it now. Like, what are there not to like about Ghost? It's a beautiful, whimsical, magical, dark, funny, depressing movie. Like, what is Ghost is amazing. Yeah, and even just like some of the genre stuff, like you mentioned, a Lady Hawk, or even I think one of my favorite episodes, and weirdly, one of our biggest episodes, which still fucking boggles my mind is uh the full moon episode we did yeah baby <laughs> where like a lot of those movies i watched because i you had the streaming service and i also watched like a bunch of shit on there um not all those movies are like good but there's at least a comfort in watching like say all 14 of the puppet master movies oh god that i was never would have done without this show i don't think also quarantine to help that because i was yeah. in uh-huh. the middle of like covid i was like fuck it i'm not doing anything else let's watch puppet master five <laughs> yeah right for sure i mean the only reason i watch all those because i got those five dollar dvds where they had like the first six puppet masters and the very next one the second six puppet masters like oh shit all right ten bucks <laughs> this is great uh but yeah, that was a fun episode. That was a great streaming service, too. The Full Moon streaming service, great. I recommend it to anybody. But that's another thing that's really kind of been cool with you and I. Like, you know, we'll share streaming services. Uh, no, uh, to any um, streaming company listening, we have different accounts. We don't share passwords at all. That's not what happens here. <laughs> Voodoo allows it. So thanks, Voodoo. We only um, share that one. <laughs> which is enough, because there's almost 7,000 movies on it. But um, yes. yeah, but even that, like, Dude, watch this, watch this, watch. Hey, I just got this. After Yang. Right. You were talking about, I want to see it. Right. I'm like, I messaged you, hey, dude, I got After Yang. You watched it like that night. And all, fuck yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, just that, hey, dude, uh, this is on HBO Max. What? And it's like, I'll watch it right away. Like, it's just, it's been really, really cool to like, not only genuinely become great friends, but also generally become friends through sort of the angle and voice of cinema where it's like now like oh you like that Ugh, you're lame or how are you not like you said gatekeeping horse shit like you like what you like i like what i like we like a lot of the same stuff there's other things that you like that i don't and vice versa but we both genuinely just love film and even when it's like a thing of like, oh, you haven't seen that movie, I have fully embraced sort of this thing of like, oh, I feel jealous that you get to watch this movie for the first time. A hundred percent. Yeah, me too. Like, like I know I keep bringing it up, but even Ladyhawk, like rewatching Ladyhawk from the show, I'm like, God, this is such a fun, like untalked about movie. And like just thinking like, man, someone at this era nowadays in 2020, whatever, can go back and watch Lady Hawk with like a great Rugger Hauer, a great Michelle Pfeiffer, a great weird score, and all this. Like someone discovering Lady Hawk for the first time. Like, what a weird movie to discover. 
you know, or like Hobo with a Shotgun, <laughs> fucking Dario Argento's Dracula 3D. You know, you're like, what the fuck is this? It, it, it's a great, not only for me and you to do it to each other, but I love that there's certain guests and, you know, we're, we're friends, both of us are friends with a lot of the guests where, you know, one of them might mention me, you know, Christian Alvarez definitely has before or people like that. And they'll message me and be like, I had never seen it before I watched it. That was a fucking weird movie. Like, hell yeah, great. I'm glad you watched it. Like, that, that's that been the most fun. Yeah, we've had a lot of great guests over the course of, you know, this this whole thing. Yeah, especially just like, I loved when I was able to like do that with especially someone like, um, you know, who now I collaborate all the time with, with Film Cred Review with like Hiel Peralta. Yeah. Who I, like, great we guess. were like the first podcast she was ever on. And I've loved being able to like help sort of foster her talent. Isn't it funny? We were the first for a lot. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, and uh, I don't ever, I would never like single out. This is my favorite guest. This is my favorite guest. I don't want to do that and make someone think like, well, it's fun. But I mean, I do want to throw shout shout outs to a couple. And, you know, if I don't mention you, don't take it personal. It's just, these are the ones through repetition or appearances that have been on. And I just feel like, I want to mention them just because they helped us a lot. So like Tori DePina, Scott Johnson, all of the three equals group, particularly Shaquille, high elk. Awesome. Christian Rodders, Rafe, you know, all these people have been on there. It's just like, man, honestly, I can't say thank you enough, you know? And because of them being on this show, I got to go do Rafe show, which I fucking love, you know? And it's just, it's been pretty awesome. You know, and, you know, another person who, you know, we've had on the show who I really love his voice and I, I have followed him on Twitter and I, I'm really interested in where he's going next. It's like Amel, you know, people like that. It's just really, we've had really good people on our show. And even the ones that we both know who we're talking about, who we might be like, oh, that didn't go great. Um still where we want to be where we are now without them so i mean even all of our guests that we've ever had genuine thank you genuine i love you you have a place in my heart awesome awesome that you did it for us and i hope for people like james and christian and hyle and people who caught the podcast he bugged to be on our show i wish you all the best luck in the future yeah w- with any single guest we like i love having those perspectives and anything that's a oh, part of the reason why i feel like i kind of wanted to end the show is because just because we had like a very big dearth of guests that we just couldn't do when like our mod and our current kind of like production schedule just because of like all the issues we've had with like scheduling mm-hmm. and stuff and I, I i love having that where it's just like we have somebody on who just hey even has like a completely different perspective on a movie that i never would have like really imagined but like totally like makes sense that's been another really great thing for even me as a person i know i'm not trying to steal anything from you but you're still gonna have a show i'm not a motherfucker uh, but <laughs> <laughs> But it's helped me grow as a person, too, just the certain movies we watch with certain guests we've had, like even my vocabulary or my understanding of things or learning and being comfortable with different pronouns or adjectives or outdated terms that I didn't know about, things like that. Like, it's really helped, you know, having members of the LGBTQ plus community on or people of different race or genders or gender fluid people or whatever we've had. It's it's 
been a really eye-opening experience and helped me grow as a person. Yeah, and then there's also just, this is one of those, there's been a couple people where it's like, I can't believe we got them necessarily because they're such fascinating guests that I just knew from other things. Drew McWinney's the big one. Because that was like literally, because we had him on for our um, reboots discussion. Oh, reboots, yeah. We talked about, right. We talked about Transformers uh, 4 and then Mad Max Fury Road. And that was one of those weird serendipitous things where back when, you know, Twitter was less of a cesspool than it currently is, he just randomly said, like, hey, I'm looking to promote, it was the Voir thing that was on Netflix that he participated in. And he was like, hey, I want, you know, if anybody has a podcast, I'd love to be on there and promote it. And I just, fuck it, you know, I'm going to message him, like, hey, you want to be on? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, is this a, is this a fucking prank? What is this? This this can't be real because I I've I've read that dude's writing when I was way younger and like was first going on like the internet and I saw him literally do that whole um, like Q and A thing with George Miller at South by Southwest. I'm like, there's no way that dude wants to be on, and he was. And that is still like one of my favorite episodes we've ever done of that show. That Michael Bay store is an all timer. So amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. But then we had Patrick from the George Lucas talk show. You know. Yeah, Patrick Cotner, yes. Yeah, great. Also very interesting, and just did a completely different, like, version of our show that was like, oh, we actually kind of, we did something weirdly out of format, and it worked tremendously well. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of great gets, man. Like I said, even the ones where, you know, we might not look at fondly or whatever, but that's also not necessarily their fault either, because we were changing as a show or trying to find our own voice and stuff, and their voice might not just vibe just ours, but I'd say more than bad we've had just amazing people i could count on like one hand basically all like the bad guests we've had yeah i can too if you think you're one of the five (laughs) you probably are not like yourself (laughs) (laughs) um but but no and even then like we've had you know every episode was a learning experience we had like even just ones where it was just the two of us there are plenty of episodes just the two of us that aren't great that aren't like necessarily my proudest moment quote unquote (laughs) Okay, well, that's a good topic. What do you think is our worst episode, just the two of us? Um, It's got to be one of the early ones. I think I'm thinking... I would say the... 1 through 30. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't quite go that far. You know what? When I would say the Westerns one, the first Westerns one we did. That was a rough I one. Is, yeah, yeah. Right, I agree. Where we did Jonah Hex and we did Hostiles. Nothing to talk about. Right. There was not much. You can tell that's one of the ones where we're just stretching. Just like, uh, d- d- uh Josh Rowland's got a weird uh, face car, right? That's the kid from the They Call Me By Your Name movie, I think. And he's in it for a second. That's also just something interesting to realize. Like, over the course of our show, I think you can kind of track not just, like, you know, anything about us, but even just the weird trends and different things in film. Like, we talked, you know, we just recorded our On the Edge of Relevance about Guardians Volume 3. Back when we first were doing this, and we did, like, the first episode was around the time that Infinity War came out. Yeah. Uh, we did that Marvel thing, and we were both still, like, huge fans of those movies. Oh, yeah, That's totally, like, yeah. I was hook, line, and sinker, man. And you just see, like, the evolution of that, and then, especially, I loved doing the sort of, like, check-in episodes for the year, whenever we would just talk about, like, movies that came out within that individual year. Like, I think one of my favorite ones of that is when we did Cherry and Barb and Star. <laughs> I tell you, I love Barb and Star. It's great. Yeah. I had more fun talking about Cherry, though. That's true. What is this? What is mustache Tom Holland? What is this? You don't slap a mustache on Tom Holland. Like, He's 20 years older. 
no, <laughs> no, that doesn't work. No, yeah, that was yeah. a good one. That was definitely a good well, one. I, I guess that also leads to a certain, I had a couple of questions prepared. We usually use the Mount Rushmore sort of comparison of like best and worst movies ever covered on the show. Okay. Um, what would you say now that we're at the end here? What is the Mount Rushmore of like the worst movies we've covered and then of the best movies? Okay, worst, Oogie Loves? Yeah. Country Bears? Okay. Um, Hood of Horror? Yeah. Oh, Catch Chainsaw. Even though that was technically, can I use that? I mean, it was an on the edge relevance, but I, you know what? I'm using it. Catch Chainsaw. I'm um, a counselor, I'll allow it. <laughs> Yeah, you so watch yourself. Those are my four words. Um, I mean, I would, I would just say to to add to piggyback onto that. Um, I would agree with um, Oogie Loves and uh, Texas Chain, like pretty much all those except I would slide in still, and it's been ever since like the fourth episode, I think. Of the oh fuck! I would put yeah. Wired. Wired is so bad. The Country Bears, I would say. I would replace Country Bears with Wired. Country Wired is still just like one of the most offensive things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty fucking awful. For those of you who don't know, this is the movie that was based on the John Belushi uh, biography that is uh, horrific and incredibly offensive. and Starring upsetting. Michael fucking Chiklis. Yep, uh, a movie that has pretty much gone to complete... Uh, obscurity that was just on YouTube because it was only released on like VHS. Very good reason. Yep, a movie that like I rarely say like oh a movie should not be out there for everybody to see. That movie should. That movie does not need to be seen by humans. No, no, that no that that deserves to die a sweet painful death. As far as good, I mean, there's so many. You know, and Moonlight's definitely up there. Of course, I'm not gonna. Even though it, I'm not gonna say Heat, it's my favorite movie, but. I it's not like I discovered it. It wasn't like a new thing. But I'm trying to think of movies that like just kind of blew me away. So, ah, oh, man, Heat. No, no, <laughs> I just said no. <laughs> Moonlight, <laughs> Moonlight uh, The Empty Man. Mm. Um. Oh shit! This one's hard. Because there's so many good. Um, you know, I'm going to pass to you on this one. I'll, I'll let you go first, and then I, I, I'll come up with some a couple more. Um, well, you know what? I would say um, The Conversation. Oh, that's a good one. Fuck. Um, Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Uh, Casablanca. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Um... Hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough because there's so many. Uh, that's right, exactly. I mean, oh, dude, you know what though? Worst movies, worst movies. Fucking, oh. I'll get I'll get rid of one. I'll throw North on that motherfucker. Replacing which one? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll replace Texas Chainsaw to be honest, because that was the that wasn't on the actual show. Right, yeah, though, if, if anybody, um, if you become a patron and want to listen to that back catalog, uh, and you want to hear us be, like, ferocious about a movie. That's the worst we've ever been. I mean, the most mean we've ever been. I think yeah. it's it's a pretty interesting listen, but it's, it's us being at our most, like, just enraged about a movie <laughs> and upset. Such, such pure fucking garbage. Incredibly awful <laughs> piece of shit garbage, for sure. To go back to kind of the thing I was talking about earlier with the, the sort of tracking of things, 
a big, I think, element where I think a big reason why we sort of stayed on the show even was we recorded the show uh, at the start of the COVID nineteen like lockdowns and stuff. Mm-hmm. That was a very interesting time. That's it, it when we started the Patreon because we had so much time on our hands. Yeah, it was, it, and it was very cathartic. You know, it was a way to sort of keep your mind off the crazy, horrible shit that's going on. I mean, we did movie nights all the time. We used to do like Zoom game nights with yep. other podcasters and stuff like that. I mean, we did it weekly, sometimes several times a week. People, We lost people in our personal lives. It got us both through some shit. And then, you know, in all fairness, the reason where I started checking out is because it became almost not necessarily a hamper, but it wasn't helping me get through my shit anymore. Yeah. And I, and I, it, it was a bummer, especially where like at a certain point there will be moments where it's like, because of like your scheduling stuff, because you were dealing with so much shit where like, I would get messages from you and I'd be like, Oh no, is he going to like delay the recording or something? And I felt so bummed about that. Cause it's like, yeah. I don't want to feel that for like a guy that I love like you, dude, I don't want, I was so bummed that I had those feelings about just you trying to communicate with me. Right. And I dreaded sending them. And that got to the point where it's like, dude, I'm dreading sending my friend a message saying, Hey, I got this personal issue coming up so I can't record. And it's like, I shouldn't feel that way. Like he's my friend. I should be like, Hey man, can't do it. Like it is what it is. It's not like, I mean, yeah, we got the patrons, but it's not like if we don't do it, then we're not making a day's worth of pay or we're not doing this or this is going to happen or what. Like, if we can't do it, we can't do it. Personal shit happens. And, and I feel like I kind of like especially started using the show sort of a bit more as like a crutch at a certain point where it's like I wanted to get it out weekly because it's like, well, whatever might not be going right in the, you know, like my personal life or like with the world right now, it's like I can still have this constant of the show and we can keep on putting an episode out every single week. And it's like that's not healthy after a certain point. Right. And I was sort of on the flip side of it where I had so much shit going on to where I knew it was going to affect how I was on the show. Right. And I'm like, I, that's not fair to if one person was paying us a dollar or even if nobody was paying us anything, our listeners, it's not fair. I, it's not fair for me to be sort of checked out negative and not giving my all to it when literally a lot of people, you know, listen to podcasts as escapism. And if I can't provide that, then why am I doing this? Or even just like with the two of us talking, like when it's like, oh, we're going to get together. And we do have like, we had consistent fun while we were, ever, we were recording. But sure. I could tell like there were certain times where it's like even the both of us were just like, oh, we don't have anything to say about this fucking movie. Like, especially like some of the bad picks recently. Total Recall, baby. <laughs> I mean, Repo Men, quite frankly, last week I kind of had that. Oh, Not for fuck. Tori. I gotta be honest, I'm glad shit happened. So I had to be on fucking <laughs> talk about Repo Man. <laughs> talk about Repo Man or King of Scotland. Yeah, for Good sure. Uh, but you know what? Um, you, we were talking about some of the people who were guests and were patrons. I have some feedback here. Um, I asked. For oh, some feedback I don't want people. this. Is this? What? No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I asked for some feedback from either the patrons or you know just fans, listeners um, from the various social medias. And uh, they had some some things to say here. So first, we're going to start off with a uh, friend of the show, James Rodriguez. Hey, says, Rodders, uh, baby. Yes, Rodders. Uh, he says, 
Hi, guys. Uh, I've been listening to your show since the early days and love hearing your wonderful back and forth across insightful discussions of the many films you've covered. I remember listening to your back catalog of episodes at my old job. It kept me company during the isolated moments when I was photographing bottles of wine that cost more than the shitty phone I listened to your podcast from. Uh, I wanted to say that I'm grateful to you guys for giving me my first taste of podcasting with episode 59's Pixar episode. And you guys were so welcoming that it lit a fire in me to continue podcasting wherever I could. Thank you guys for the wonderful discussions. They were great company, and I wish you both all the best in the future. We appreciate that, James. James is a great dude. James is a great dude. You fucking British fuck. <laughs> you enjoying your new king over there, motherfucker? Yeah, how's Brexit going? No, I <laughs> James, you're a good dude. Man. Unlike us, we're great here. Nothing bad's happened. Nothing here bad in the has US. ever happened. America is perfect. It's wonderful. Everything is going great. Uh, no, James, good man, good dude, love you. Congratulations on your semi-recent engagement. Right, from like I think a year ago at this point. <laughs> but yes, I don't know, man. I don't fucking pay attention to stuff. What do you want? Me to, like, congratulations on your Pokemon tattoo. I don't fucking know. I mean, that's the bigger accomplishment. I would that's say. that's true. That's ballsy. Yeah, and, and you know, James is another great example where it's like him or like Emily Slade, another great guest. Like the international guests we've had on have been bizarre. <laughs> Emily's just like, shit. Talking to somebody Emily's like awesome. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, love Emily. Uh, but yeah, just like uh, having even that perspective is also very interesting. Um, yeah, and even then, I got to be on Emily's show. You know what I mean? Like, that's same. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and great. she, and, you know, I, I got to like start doing like with Rafe um, on his show, like the Oscar things, which we did recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all that. It's been all, all sorts of fun. Um, then next up, we've got Michael Gordon. Uh, from over at the ESO Network, or former home before Talk Film Society, um, who says, you guys have had a great run. Looking forward to the next chapter. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate that. And I want to say that Mike's episode, where he was a guest, uh, is one of my favorites as <laughs> Me well. Me too. I was going to say, thank you, Mike. Sorry about the Crow Wicked Prayer. <laughs> yes, because uh, we'd be talking about the Crow Wicked Prayer and Hellboy 2. And Mike Gordon, wonderful guy. Like, Sweetheart. Very jovial, very sweet, sweet man. Yeah. Lovable man. Um, but we broke him. With that, with Crow Wicked Prayer, and I just loved being able to like hear him say, just like I, I, you know, I try and look at the positive things, and just this movie, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so good, such a pretty great. (laughs) Ah. But, um, and Chad also, you know what, to the ESO network was our home for quite a while. Yeah, they were great, man. They were totally great. Like, they were totally understanding. They were totally cool. They worked with us. And even to the point where we were like, you know, maybe it's time to move on. Totally gracious, totally cool. No bullshit, no nothing. Like, all right, cool. We're going to miss you guys, but good luck. Like, great podcast yeah. network. Yeah. They're really good people over there. Um, now, Jonathan Havden McHale, another large... Oh, guy this guy? Show. All right. Yes, son. Yes, he has some things to say. Um, he says, As a friend, guest, and patron of Double Edge Double Bill, it's sad to hear that the final episode has come. Thomas and Adam are fun, witty, and insightful on popular blockbusters and long-lost cinema for good and bad. Uh, the guests you find bring flavor, not seen or heard on other film podcasts. The Patreon content... Uh, was all treats, even the Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre review. Yeah. Good luck on your future endeavors. Thank you, Jonathan. Another one. Thanks, Jonathan. Love good man. Yeah, you're a good guy. Good guy, buddy. Uh, and he was on one of, I think, my favorite episodes where, speaking of Moonlight, the one where we did Moonlight Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, and God, I think he had a crucial Daisy. perspective yeah, that was I completely agree. for that discussion. Yeah, that was a great episode. 
Yes. Uh, then uh, our buddy Jeff Larimore, longtime patron on the show, says, uh, I'm sorry for us fans, but happy that both of you guys can move toward the next stage of your lives, whatever shape that will take. I'm thankful for the many, many hours the two of you put into creating a show that was fun, interesting, occasionally even deep. Uh, best of luck to both of you and keep us longtime listeners updated on your next ventures. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff's a great dude. Met Jeff uh, over at Dragon Con a few years ago. Great guy. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Never had the pleasure of meeting you or talking to you, but thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Then uh, another buddy of ours, Brian Kane, who's a longtime patron as well, a guy I knew from high school, quite frankly, uh, says, quote, um, It was a great run. I'm glad I was there from the beginning. I have a ton to catch up on. It's going to be surreal hearing this comment right out years from now when I finally get to the final episode. Well, yes, Brian, thank you. Uh, in 2027, how are things holding up? I'm guessing not great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, if I had to guess, thanks for listening. Steer clear of the mutants. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new mutant over. <laughs> um, the next up is Mallory Somerville, another longtime listener. It's my cousin. Yep, your cousin. Uh, Mallory has to say, I haven't missed an episode since the week you started this podcast. Having the show to look forward to every week, laughing or groaning along with you, expanding the watch list and getting to hear insightful and entertaining discussion has been a joy and has gotten me through some really dark times. I can't tell you what this show has meant to me. And while I'll miss it so much, I'll be there to support whatever comes next. Thank you for all your work that you put into it. And this has been a hell of a ride. Love you guys. Thank you, Mallory. It was very sweet. Oh, Mallory, fuck off. You're getting me all emotional. I know I love you, Mallory. You're a sweet, sweet, sweetheart. Uh, I've loved you from the second I held you when you were a baby. Uh, thank you for your kind words. Thank you for being a loyal supporter. And uh, I'll see you down the road, you beautiful, beautiful asshole. <laughs> I'm really getting choked up in that. <laughs> and now our final bit of feedback from another guy who has been on the show quite frequently, Mr. Casey Gerard. Oh, this fucking guy. In uh, in reference to the show ending, he says, I'm going to miss this podcast, not just as a friend of the show, but as a listener. Uh, I love the format and the opportunity to discover and to reassess each week. I still think about watching AI for the first time in over a decade after your episode, and it was a completely different experience. Uh, Listening was a unique experience for... um, seeing a friendship flourish and strengthen in real time. I wish nothing but luck to Adam in his future endeavors and to Thomas on his next project, whatever each of those may be, you know, unless they're ventures like crime or sports. It's going to be a crime. <laughs> Probably crimes, yes. Uh, yeah. I love you guys. You are truly the Steve Martin and Martin Short of podcasters who would return my phone calls. Party on, dudes. Oh, thanks, Casey, bro. Love you, man. You're a good dude. Uh, that's another one of my favorite episodes ever when we did uh, the Star Trek episode. Great episode. Uh, yeah. Casey, good luck to you too, man. And uh, lose my number. You fuck. <laughs> He's not taking back those calls. Yeah, especially that Steve Martin Martin shirt comparison, uh, I think, is a bit uh, <laughs> much. Well, I look, I look like if Steve Martin ate Martin short. <laughs> so there's a I guess the question is who is who in that scenario I know who you would want to be I know who I'd want to be but I think I'd probably end up being the other one just because of how fucking nihilistic I can be you think Steve Martin's like not more nihilistic than Martin, <laughs> than Martin Short? Short yeah I think so 
Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, I guess, I guess, but do I fit the Martin Short is more of the question. I don't know if I would quite fit the Martin Short comparison necessarily. No, your day would be farting big. <laughs> Shots fired for the end of the show. Uh, but yeah, thanks everybody for the that feedback there. And also just thanks to like, you know, anybody who's really listened to the show. Like I'm somebody who I sometimes would obsessively obsess over like catching the numbers for like certain episodes whenever they dropped. But even if you just listen to the show like once, uh, even if it's this episode, which very weird one to jump in on, I would say <laughs> this is your right. first. <laughs> but go backwards. Choice. Learn how enemies became friends. <laughs> Uh, but this just thanks to anybody who ever listened to the show, really. We really appreciate it. Yeah, 100%. You know, I don't care if there was one person, 12 people, 200 people, more than that. I mean, it's just anybody who got any sort of enjoyment out of us prattling on like fucking morons for five years. Like, awesome. Thank you. Um, and yeah, you know what? Let's uh, start, you know, wrapping things up here. We've been going for quite a while. This is definitely going to be the longest regular episode of the show. Yeah. But um, we need to thank some people, like thanks to Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music used for the show since the beginning. Number one, friend of mine, Mm -hmm. haven't talked to him in years, never asked us for a fucking thing other than just to shoot people his direction. Uh, Great guy. Thank you, Chris. Love the song. Always loved the song to the point where the genesis of the show started. I told Thomas I could do the song and create the art. The art was awful, <laughs> but <laughs> it was so bad. It was so fucking bad because I was I was supposed to use a computer. My computer shit out on me, so I just drew something on a piece of paper and took a picture. Like yeah, it is what I got. Not even scanned. You just took a picture with his iPhone. Yeah, oh, cool. I had all my shit crapped out on me, um, and I don't use an iPhone. I use a Samsung. Oh, sorry. Uh, of course. Yeah, I use an Android dick. I believe you sent me a Polaroid the first time. By carrier pigeon too. It took weeks. Right. Um, but yeah, no, the music I told Thomas right away. I like this guy. This is a song I like. Thomas was like, I like it too. Let's use it. Never changed it. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it for sure. Yep. And uh, you can listen to us at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. That's the last time we have to say it. I never said it before because I don't really give a shit. Uh, and thanks also to uh, Christian Thor Lally for our artwork, our newer artwork. Uh, find him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water for more of his great stuff. And you know, also thanks to Emily Scarda, who was a buddy of mine from college. Our original the, artwork. The yeah. Used for the first part of it. Yeah. Um, and of course, thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod who like we ever since we started the Patreon about three years ago, you guys have been really helping out. And those of you who wish to stay and listen to some of like the new the new uh, bonus content I'm going to be putting out in the next couple weeks um, and also, you know, getting updates about the new show I'll be doing. Uh, you can do that. Just join them for one dollar really helps out. Uh, helps me keep, you know, the hosting fees. I literally just paid like the hosting fees earlier today. <laughs> for like another year so I can do that new show. So I uh, really appreciate it. All of you who've ever been patrons, even if you had to like stop at a certain point, we always appreciate any dollar that's ever gone to us. Yeah. And if you want to keep help Thomas out, so you can listen to his like criterion collection, Earl gray tea, whatever the fuck it's going to be show. <laughs> Good for you guys. Criterion collection. Crazy. Yeah. No, this, I taste a bit of juniper in this tea. By the way, what did you think of Rashomon? <laughs> Fucking jerk. <laughs> 
But yeah, thanks guys over at the Patreon. I really appreciate them. Patreon.com slash GEDBpod, at least for now. That might change <laughs> as I uh, restructure the Patreon. Um, but you know what? Uh, you can uh, find us, and also I'll be posting updates on, uh, you know, the Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at DEDBpod currently. And um, you don't have to submit any feedback to doubleheadshevelbill at gmail.com anymore. I'm probably not going to be using that. <laughs> Did anybody ever send us an email? We did have a couple, like, emails that were sent out. Yeah, like, Bill L. Shout out if he's still listening. Okay. Oh, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like Wow, that. holy yeah. shit. That's a name I haven't heard in a while. In a long time. But you can follow those places, and I'll be able on the socials and stuff, uh, if Twitter still exists uh, by the time I put up the new show. Um, I'll have some, you know, updates and stuff like that for what the future is for my show. And uh, you can also find me. Thomas is going to get the blue check mark for the new show. You fucking, you sell out. It's $8, and it's so <laughs> worth my $8. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, you know, that's what you want. Elon loves listening to the show, and I fucking hate that he does. Um <laughs> The quack. only listener I would say fuck off. Oh, that fucking Never quack quack. Fuck you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can follow me on all the stuff I do over on Twitter and Letterboxd as at not the who's Tommy. And also I do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And also, you know, just a shout out to Film Cred Review. Like I mentioned earlier, Hyal Peralta hosts that show on the Patreon uh, for Film Cred. I produce it and edit it and sometimes I'm on it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can find me on Letterboxd, like I said, at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. You can also find me on Twitter. Uh, mostly I'm doing watch-alongs with like the Joe Bob Briggs drive-in at this point. I feel that's the only reason to use Twitter because at least people are having a good time. Uh, and that's at Schwanson Says. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N underscore S-E-Z. And then, uh, yeah, other than that, uh, leave me alone. He has to hibernate. He's been doing this for five years. He's gonna Bro, I'm so fat and filled with so many of the new Dorito flavors. Like, I gotta go to bed. I mean, that's a good point. All the different Dorito flavors that we've lived through in the past five years. I just ate the new hot mustard and tangy ketchup Doritos. <laughs> They're good, but they are filling. And uh, for more of the next show and, you know, whatever will be coming in the future, uh, subscribe to this feed. It'll be on this feed, whatever the next thing I do. Um, it'll be, you know, here on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. And as I said, in the intervening weeks, you know, before I start the new show, I'll be releasing some stuff from behind the Patreon wall. Um, like, for example, I'm going to be putting up our Matrix discussion, I think, is the next thing I'll put up in a couple weeks. Oh, is that what the one the Ray for? I, I fucking, like, tore him apart, like, broke his heart because he loves the Matrix I, so I, much. I, I mean, I guess so, yeah. The, 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 we did that as a media discussion. I'll also put in the Matrix uh, Resurrections thing that was attached good to that. I, yeah, that's good. Yeah. One. I'll be on the edge of relevance for that. Um, and, um, you know, if you're listening on Talk Film Society, make sure to listen to all the other great shows that are on the network. Um, you know, that'll be where the new show is going to be. I talked with Marcelo, another great guy who's been on the guest on the show. Yeah. He said, yeah, whatever you want to do in the future, man, I'm going to all host it for sure. Really appreciate, you know, the Talk Film has been our home, especially for like the last year and a half as well. Yeah. Great, 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 great people. Marcelo was a, was a great guest, great guy to sort of bust his balls a little bit about Zack Snyder and all that. Like, uh, I really like Marcelo. He's a good, good, good guy. And uh, for Rafe, uh, you might have to buy an actual digital radio. Um, I know you listen to this on old-timey radio somehow. 
get in the present, man. Stop powering everything by coal. Yeah, I mean, he showed me like, look, I listened to the show and it was like on vinyl. I'm like, how did you? I right, that? what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, yeah, it's really crazy. He has a bunch of vaudeville people acted out. Like, I don't know what's happening with that guy. <laughs> vaudeville, one of our favorite art forms. Mm-hmm. Stop eating grits, Rafe. There's other food out there. Uh, and you know, to help out, you know, with this new show or to expose more people to this this old show, all the the entire archive, by the way, will be on here. I'm not planning on like deleting anything. Um, so you know, this archive will be up here for any of you to listen to all the 256 episodes previously. Um, it would help us out, you know, it would help me out especially uh, with the future if you were to rate, if you were simply share the show around, gives us more visibility really helps out. And if you have done that before, anybody who's like shared the show or written a review for us, the few of you who did on Apple Podcasts, that we really appreciate it. Yeah, I don't really give a shit what you guys do anymore. You're all, you're all dead to me. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Well, uh, well. on uh, that note, Adam, it's time to do our, our final goodbyes. And I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for having this journey with me. We've really become friends over the course of this, and like we mentioned, we went through so many different turbulent times, and even, you know, with we've both kind of gotten burned out over the last couple months. Still, whenever we recorded, whenever we had just like a genuine, like, fun discussion back and forth, it never felt like a chore. Every single moment, I love doing it. I really love you, man. I agree, man. I love you, too. You're a brother for life, for sure. Um, I hope you're not, like, a Fredo that I have to have killed, um, but you never know. Uh but yeah, I love you, man. It was always a good time, always a good journey. And uh, you helped me find my voice, uh, especially in a modern world. Uh, you helped me appreciate things that I ever really understood. And you helped me become even a bigger lover of cinema and film in general. So for that, I am internally indebted to you. And on that note, until the next show comes along, we hope you're somewhere that's green. Yeah, and I love all of you except Rafe. Go fuck yourself. Pow, pow, pow. Last shots fired, last episode. Fuck you, Rafe, you old bastard.